Cork are in serious trouble. In the Munster Championship, they're going to get beaten. They're going to get beaten early. And when the Cork crowd turn against them, they turn so harsh. The Football Pod is available every Tuesday exclusively on the OTB Sports app. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. It's half past seven. This is OTBAM. You're very welcome along. Owen and Johnny Ward with you right the way through until 10 o'clock this morning. And we're going to have Sarah Lavin with us a little bit later on. We're going to be talking about Eddie Jones's job security with Chris Jones of the BBC. And we've also got a special report into the current status of Gaelic football in Kilkenny coming your way after nine o'clock this morning. It is 10 years since they played in the National Football League. I spent a bit of time down there recently and we're going to be bringing you that piece, as I say, after nine o'clock this morning. You can get in touch by tweeting us at Off The Ball or commenting on the YouTube stream and Johnny is with us in studio, fresh from your bout with, your battle yeah. with COVID. Brought down after two long years of trying not to get it valiantly, yeah. It wasn't bad though, it was like having a cold or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Just, and you know, you could work, it was during Shelton, but I could like work away and... Uh, yeah, came out then uh, after uh, a week of isolation and uh, yeah, the figures are pretty big at the moment. So yeah, I guess I was due to get it at some stage. Mm. Yeah, yeah, good to have you in. Uh, big news this morning and it is that we're going to have the Euros back here in 2028, assuming that there isn't another sort of pandemic or another reason to, to not have games here uh, in, what is it, six years time. We're going to be an official co-host of uh, the European Championships. It's going to be an announcement that's going to be made next month because there is no other bid forthcoming. And therefore, the UK and Ireland are going to be the ones who who get on board here. The Aviva Stadium and Croke Park are going to be the Dublin venues. Casement Park is going to be the only realistic Belfast venue and that's up in the air and the final and semi-finals are more than likely going to be played in Wembley because who cares about what happened last year mm. and that's the current state of play so uh, what are the excitement levels like when you see this story this morning? Yeah, it's, it's a bit like Barney when he goes to the job for the Quickie Mart and he's like, you know, I need a place to stay out of the sun and they're like, well he is the outstanding candidate because there's, no, <laughs> there's nobody else <laughs> and, uh, I think they ended up giving it to James Woods in the end but there was no James Woods for this and uh, like, it's kind of mad just reading it that yeah, it was the only uh, the only actual viable candidate left but I'm excited by it, yeah I know, um, even like we were on here talking about it and there is a counter argument within the game here that we have a lot of ills in this country in terms of uh, stadia in, in, in at non-league level and League of Ireland level and facilities for coaching and all of that all of which is true but I don't see any negative in this as long as it's not going to cost a lot of money and uh, it'd be great to bring uh, a tournament to, to Dublin um, it'd be fantastic and the, the key one for me I think is Caseman Park Owen I think uh, the irony of ironies that Caseman Park might finally get off the ground to accelerate its role in a Euro 2028 20, uh, football tournament wouldn't be lost in anyone I think but um, it might finally get off the ground because um, we spoke about it pre-show like it's 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 a very sad state of affairs I went to Caseman Park um, a few years ago Galway were playing Antrim actually and uh, got beaten up there and um, really really enjoyed the day out in Antrim got great great hospitality up there and great day in Belfast obviously and um, it's just sad that it has fallen into the disrepair that it has but I think you know there were uh Lots of, there's lots of criticism of Sinn Féin recently when Irish League funding was frozen for places like the Oval and places like mm-hmm. that and Casement wasn't um, 
kind of it wasn't looked at the same way because it's deemed a higher priority and that was in February and it was Sinn Féin got a lot of criticism over it and Sinn Féin blamed the fact that Stormont had collapsed basically for this um, I spoke to people up the north who were saying well it's purely political because Sinn Féin doesn't see that it would get that many votes from the Irish League sort of family um, but I would hope that everyone in the north would come together for casement and um, particularly if I think it would be very very wrong if Northern Ireland weren't represented in this Yeah and I'm sure that everybody in Northern Ireland would feel uh, pretty disappointed if this didn't manage to happen for them because like Windsor Park you mentioned as well is actually a beautiful stadium mm. and there's absolutely no chance that you're touching that like it would be, it would be very very it's stupid if they to touch yeah. that to bring it up to the required uh, capacity so that's not going to be uh, a starter whereas this as sad as it kind of is is going to be probably the thing that gets Casewind Park off the ground will Casewind Park have taken a lot longer for it to actually uh, get the, the the required political backing uh, to get sorted over the next little while. If it wasn't for a bid like this, we don't know. Like I mean, there's elections coming down the line there uh, in the next couple of months. Maybe that'll have a big part to play as well. And yeah, in, 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 how, in how this goes, I I I think. I mean, you're speculating about Northern politics, but I, I can't see Northern politics going any other way other than the middle, like in the near future, because I think just people are totally fed up of, of the green and orange stuff that when you've a collapsed government and you've real issues like that affect people's day-to-day lives, um, like this, for example, where it's kind of like, uh, and if there's funding for the likes of, you know, the Oval I've been to, they, they've put a lot of effort into redeveloping the Oval, which is really... Um, really cool old stadium but needs to be renovated and Glentorn themselves would feel very disappointed. Um, in terms of casements, I mean, it's a bit of a scandal that the ground has gone this bad Like, and that all these northern, all these northern games are taking place effectively um, elsewhere and I think Belfast would really benefit from a, a thriving casement and um, I'd like to think, like I've, I've been on here before and say, you know, I'm, I've made the point that the GEA's inability to attract kind of um, you know, Protestants in the north into the whole scene is is very sad because, like hurling and football, particularly hurling when it's played well, I, I don't think how anyone wouldn't enjoy that whole experience. But I think there have been, um, you know, there has been progress made in the north in terms of I think there's a, a Gaelic club in East Belfast now and stuff like that. And I think the attitude might be changing a bit up there. And if if Casement could bring everyone together, because um, the bottom line is Northern Irish football fans deserve. Uh, games in Belfast, 100%. Like, yeah. if this is to come to these islands, and then there's also the whole financial element of it as well, which will just give the political, will grease the political wheels a little bit as well. Like the, it's saying in in Dan McDonald and Philip Ryan's piece this morning that ministers are going to be told that there's potential for up to 150,000 fans from outside Ireland or UK to come here to attend, and it could mean 600 million euros spent in the Irish economy. I mean, those figures are are, are often they're, thrown out. Yeah, and, they're and kind I, of gobbledygook all the time. Yeah, and I like I guess from. Uh, the perspective in the south it is a situation where not a whole pile of work is going to need to be done on infrastructure and mm. the expenditure may not be compared to what it would have been for the World Cup which was yeah. possibly pine, it was bordering on pine the sky stuff uh, especially when you saw some of the comments around building a brand new stadium for that at yeah. least you won't have that sort of nonsense going on when it comes to Euros bid it's actually totally, yeah. existing infrastructure uh, hopefully like, anyway uh, okay, I genuinely think it's despicable where like the likes of Qatar just build a stadium for an event I mean like it's so wrong and, and every level like um but this wouldn't be like that and i think the there's more to it than money as well there's actually a very like people feel good about their city hosting something like this and an influx of visitors and what what like how would it not show belfast in a good light belfast is a great city bring 
people from all over Europe to Belfast to watch football and showcase the city and showcase Caseman Park and bear in mind Caseman Park can be used for Northern Ireland games in the future if if Northern Ireland if Windsor just happens to be surplus to the um, attendance kind of that they'd want at a game like that say if Northern Ireland ended up playing the Republic or or England for example um, Caseman Park I'm sure will be open to doing as as Co Park did back in the day but in terms of uh, the year 28 bid I think There'd be something missing if, if we'd nothing in the six counties, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right, it is uh, 7.38, you're with us here on OTBAM, which is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Let's tell you what's coming up over the course of the next little while. Uh, we're going to have Chris Jones with us at uh, 10 past 8 this morning. There is, uh, the shit is hitting the fan, quite frankly, with English rugby at the moment. Uh, Eddie Jones is under... A lot of pressure from the perspective of the England fans at the moment. There's a lot of England fans who do not want him to be in charge at next year's World Cup. But the RFU do want him to be in charge at next year's World Cup. They think, in fact, that they've made a lot of progress over the course of the last little while. So it'll be very interesting to hear what Chris Jones has to say. Is there a world in which Eddie Jones potentially isn't head coach come the end of this year, if that tour to Australia, for example, doesn't go well? And we'll find out very shortly. Half past eight, sports pages and sports news coming your way. Uh, Sarah Lavin, then the Irish hurdler, who had a brilliant weekend in Belgrade, will be with us at quarter to nine. And then that uh, Kilkenny piece coming your way at uh, 10 past nine this morning. Uh, just to tell you as well, uh, get ready to cheer Ireland on in the TikTok Women's Six Nations to launch this year's campaign. We are giving away two tickets to see Ireland take on Wales on Saturday the 26th of March. That's this Saturday at quarter to five in the RDS Arena. The lucky winners will also be entered into a draw to be able a chance to win an overnight stay in this stunning intercontinental hotel on the night of the game. To enter this competition... Tell us what you think the score will be this weekend between Ireland and Wales. Wherever you're watching this morning's OTBAM, just comment on Twitter or Facebook or YouTube. International Women's Rugby is at the RDS and there is nothing like it. Be part of the action. Get your tickets at ticketmaster.ie. We're going to be chatting a little bit over the next little while about the Aviva Stadium, about the League of Ireland, about Cheltenham, but we want to start with the Republic of Ireland. Uh, It's going to be a a big weekend for them. We've got a a brand new coach in with Stephen Kenny at the moment. We've got Belgium coming to town, Lithuania coming to town, another opportunity uh, to fill out the stadium to watch Ireland play. Uh, Conor Howerhan was in front of the microphones yesterday and he was speaking to Nathan about the departure of Anthony Barry. Have a listen. Uh, Connor, you obviously get a sense this evening for the first time what John Eustace is all about. But can I just ask on Anthony Barry the impact he made? Because it's hard for the outside to fully get what an assistant manager is doing and the impact they have. He's given a lot of credit for the change to three and back. Can you talk about what sort of a role he had over the last year and how big a loss he might be? Yeah, look, there's, there's no kind of secret that you know Andy was fantastic. Um, you know, when he first came in. Um, he was you know, he was breath of fresh air. His ideas and how he coached was was great. You know he was obviously at Chelsea. Um, you know, you're not a bad coach if you're if you're if you're there at Chelsea at a top club. You know he's obviously won a few trophies with them as well and been involved heavily involved. So yeah, look, there's you know Anthony was very very impressive in his time here. Um, he obviously got on to Belgium, but uh, yeah, you know Anthony put his own stamp on the group and and, and it was brilliant. But we have to move on from that now and. Hopefully the John coming in can can maybe give us a few more ideas or different ideas with Keith as well, who's great. So yeah, look, um, you know, thanks to Anthony for everything he's done for us. He was brilliant, but new chapter now and trying to trying to move forward and uh, go on to kind of better, bigger and better things. Connor Howard speaking at an FAI event yesterday, and John Eustace was straight on the training ground at Abbottstown yesterday. I think most people, Johnny went straight to Wikipedia mm. to uh, brush up or to find out who John Eustace is. Just reading uh, Dan's piece this morning in, in The Independent, 
doesn't actually sound like a, a bad appointment or it sounds like there's a possibility for Ireland to uh, have hopped on the upward trajectory of this guy like he was mm. in the mix to become Swansea City manager last year and for personal reasons that move broke down he plays a system that's not too dissimilar or he's an assistant coach in a system of QPR that's not too dissimilar from the Republic of Ireland and it looks like uh, Stephen Kenny might have got a good one here again like we're, we're, we're speculating here I guess the proof will be in the pudding a little bit but uh, after a little bit of digging a little bit of reading this morning there's a little bit less of a who's he and a bit more of a okay this could actually work yeah like you can imagine if Stephen Kenny went through like four different uh, partners or four different like girlfriends in the space of a year after the fourth one you'd be like Stephen I mean you have to start looking at yourself here but I think he's just generally <laughs> been very unlucky I mean the amount of upheaval in the time that he's been there is amazing it's mm. absolutely mad like from obviously Duffer to Rory Higgins to um, Ansi Barry now to Eustace uh, including the goalkeeping situation as well um, we had Dean Kiley on actually uh, the last time I think uh, one of the last times I was in here and he was really refreshing and I think he's uh, it's been a, a quest for continuity here as much as possible um, and just reading Dan's piece there it is that that's QPR system QPR play nice brand of football it's quite similar and um, I, I think you know Kenny must be doing something right because the upheaval can't have helped but like Ireland are in a good place at the moment and uh, as much as Anthony Barry was um, very well regarded um, I think this allows us to move on now and ultimately Kenny is the manager um, and it can't have been easy for him you know the Andy Barry thing came out of the blue for me I was like well if you're as much as there's a funny one with this one as well in that he was um he was with Steve McLaren and Steve McLaren moved on but he stayed there and it was a bit like Barry and Lampard at Chelsea where he was Lampard's man but he stayed there but I never I mean when you're the manager when you're an assistant coach at Chelsea and you're um, you're highly touted to get a big job and your part-time job and it's very much a part-time thing is involved with Ireland you just don't envisage your next job being another part-time job or like a move to Belgium um, so I think that probably did shock them a bit but this just sounds like it's um, sounds like an ideal appointment really Yeah It's also a great situation to be in where his start is a couple of friendlies and it's not going yeah. to be a star sort of Belgium team that comes to town I think Okay, the contract's been signed now. There's every game doesn't have that sort of tension around it that I felt that maybe some of the friendlies even last year had around it, like Qatar, for example, mm-hmm. when they were in town. So the, the, the pressure is probably at its smallest uh, compared to at any point over the last eighteen months. I feel on, on yeah. Stephen Kenny. So that that's a really good time to be bringing a new coach th- these first couple of games. The only thing is the the Belgium game is, um, you know. There's there's a lot of kind of interest in it, but the fact that Belgium obviously have so so many of their big marquee fifty cap plus players out means that it's a bit of a lose lose for Ireland in some respects because if they do perform really well, it'd be like oh well that's not much of a Belgium team, and if they get well beaten, which is obviously um, which is obviously possible, uh, there'll be there will be some negativity about well Ireland have reset after the break and we've been very disappointing here, so there's a little bit of pressure. But I think the two games with the interest levels behind them um, will be a very good barometer of where we're at. And as you say, like it's not there's not massive pressure in terms of uh, you know getting points on the board or whatever. But we'd want to be kind of getting a win or four points from the two games. You'd hope anyway. Put it that way, winning and a draw. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Conor Howerhan was obviously, as we heard, out doing media yesterday. Does that suggest that maybe we're going to see a bit more of Conor Howerhan than we're used to seeing over the next couple of games? Yeah, possibly. I could think. I think he'll mix it up a bit in the two games as well. Conor Howerhan's a lovely footballer. I think in terms of um, you got to understand as well that his his quality from set pieces is something that we really um, strive towards. And obviously, Jamie McGrath's 
suddenly out in the cold at the moment for now anyway so there are spaces in that midfield um, and I, I guess the thing with Connor's career is that I'd say if you ask managers in, in terms of his passing ability and his technical ability they'd say like oh he's very very good but he just maybe athletically he doesn't influence games as much as the really really good midfielders and that's kind of maybe that's held him back but he's a lovely footballer great left foot on him and uh, yeah I think he will feature in the two games very interested to see what what uh, teams he what teams he plays because uh, we do have actually some reasonable options at the moment yeah and like I mean it's not to say that he's not been in Kenny's good books or anything like that if you look back at the last three fixtures he's come off the bench things have been uh, going positively for Ireland so uh, he's very much been in the mix there but, uh, there's been a couple of other interesting Ireland talking points over the last couple of days one of which is that we're all going to be Udinese fans next year indeed Festi has uh, confirmed that uh, Derby County uh, unfortunately are, are letting go of him he's going to go to, to Udinese I don't think a lot of the Derby fans are happy about this whatsoever but it probably illustrates how their club is being run at the moment and obviously we're going to have James Abanqua there next season as well so mm. hop on that bandwagon book your flights to, to North Italy ASAP yeah very near the Slovenian border mm. and the the town is actually like it's I was looking it up there it's a little bigger than it's a bit bigger than but not much bigger than Galway it's a small area like and it just shows that you need you know Udinese is a name we can all relate to and um, obviously it's a bit of a football hotbed but I've uh, I watched kind of a good bit of derby this season because um, obviously Jason Knight was playing and Festy was getting going as well and uh, I've found the whole you know Wayne Rooney's battle to keep them up in the circumstances I found that quite compelling and um, I just think the championship is a great watch in general so I've been watching a bit of Derby and uh, he's been so good the games I've seen and he's I think the, the, the thought process with him was that he's his first touch and his passing needed improvement but the games I saw he was very good and he's just so quick and when you think about it he's kind of doing more in some respects than Ogbeni in that he's just playing at he's playing at a league above that and uh, Ogbeni is obviously going to be in the championship next season but um, Festi's performance has definitely merited a call up and it'll it'll be inevitable that he will come into the squad but the Udinese thing is fascinating it's becoming quite normal now that like non-British clubs start looking at our players even players that are over the age of 18 as well so um, yeah Udinese it'll be it'll be uh, like the days of uh, the old kind of Monday nights watching Italian football back when it was like um, was it Miles Dungan used to present at Norte? Um, but hopefully we'll have renewed interest there yeah, because I think he's gonna I think he's gonna be, play a much bigger role in in Ireland's in the Ireland setup this year because especially off the bench he's so quick and. Um, he's another option to have, yeah. Yeah, Festi is going to be more of an option off the bench, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. Great, great. It will be, like, it's going to be inevitable when we see him more involved in the senior team over the next little while. It's his versatility as well. Mm. I, was, I was over watching him play a couple of weeks ago and it's his ability to get out of a tight situation and also the fact that Rooney just swapped wings with him uh, mid- mid-match. Yeah. And, like, I mean, obviously it's going to be... It's a left-sided wing-back, mm. I suspect, is where his favourite position is. But it is interesting that a manager who knows him very well is, is moving him around the place. Um on the same side with a banquet, if they were both somehow in the starting team for that team next year, like that's just that's just an amazing setup. Totally, and like a banquet, um, I think he's he's just a great story as well. That he's uh, you know he's focusing on his education, and uh, I was watching the the shells game to start the season, and you know you you do wonder sometimes. I wrote a piece for the Ireland match program actually on on the Saturday, and I was talking about being at Gavin Bazuna's debut for Shamrock Rovers. And watching James Abanqua in his early days at Pats, you do kind of start thinking, well, I'll be looking back in 10 years' time and saying, oh, I, like, I saw James Abanqua when he was 17 because he's an absolute man mountain. He's so strong. Like, he's, he, I, I'd imagine if he took to, like, the likes of rugby or 
any sort of field sport he could have done anything he's just so athletically impressive um, and seems to be a great kid off the pitch as well um, but it is a big step up you know you have to say like he's missed a couple of Pats games because I think he was doing his mocks or something like that but he's been brilliant for Pats but it is a step up I think the feeling at Pats is that though they wouldn't be surprised if he went right to the top right. um, and there are some a lot of really good young talented defenders in the League of Ireland at the moment He came on with 10 minutes to play on Friday night mm. obviously uh, pretty devastating blow to concede the 92nd minute and lose to Derry City. Yeah, yeah. But like, I mean, if we, if we like to do kind of like a, a quick sort of mid-term uh, reappraisal of, of everything pre-season in the League of Ireland, I suspect from a neutral standpoint, you're looking at that table and you're like, that's that's exactly what we wanted. Nothing against Shamrock Rovers, but not having them at the top of the table, not having them run away with this league is exactly what it needed. Oh, totally. And uh, I, I don't think it's that much of a surprise that the likes of Derry and, and Pats are up there. And uh, Shamrock Rovers have dropped maybe more points than some people would expect. They've already dropped, I think, 10 points. Yeah. Um, various kind of uh, reasons, reasons behind that. Um, but I, th- I do look at their last two games and I, I spoke to people who were at the Sligo Rovers game and they said Shamrock Rovers were very good. It looked like in the Pats games, as much as they lost that game, it looked like they were very good as well. So I don't, I wouldn't be panicking if I were a Shamrock Rovers fan, but it's important that there is a title race and, you know, you consider as well, Derry City have had really bad luck with their marquee signings. Like Matty Smith, uh, Patrick McElhenney and Michael Duffy have barely played at all. Between the three of them, Michael Duffy's now out for about three months. Um, McElhenney's kind of injuries is, is fairly consistent with his career, unfortunately. And Matty Smith um, has had a, a couple of issues as well or whatever. So they've done really well. And um, I think that we have a proper title race now. And I think... There's, there's a lot of depth to the league this season on like even if Shamrock Rovers go to Bally Buffet um, I wouldn't be expecting them to steamroll them and then you, you look at if Shamrock Rovers are playing Bowes, Sligo Dundalk St. Pats or Derry City like they're going to be well in the game there so I think uh, the league's in a good place and um, there's been a real vibrancy about the games as well really good attendances um, you mentioned TikTok sponsoring the uh, the, the Women's Six Nations there um, like Galway United have 55,000 TikTok followers like and I was just thinking of that like there's social media has given the league a massive lift Finn Harps put out a tweet um, in relation to Thomas Tuchel where he was uh, suggesting that they'd, Chelsea would have to drive to the Middlesbrough away game and it'd be a 10 hour round trip and Finn Harps put out a tweet a tweet cry me a river yeah, yeah. <laughs> and as much as kind of like sometimes you know you can get a bit like well uh, official account shouldn't be doing that but it got like two it and a half absolutely should be doing yeah it. and it got like the last time I looked it had two million impressions mm. and the, even the, the little skill from um, Malin in the defeat to, to Rovers that Bose had had like over a million impressions very quickly so social media and stuff like that is really driving the League of Ireland you had the Bose football focus feature um, and it's becoming a nice kind of I think um, counterculture to where the Premier League is at the moment and the Premier League in terms of the optics of it has been pretty bad this season in many ways Yeah for sure well, what's the, the Galway United TikTok account uh, what's, what's it good at what's its brand on TikTok like I have to say I, I have no idea I don't oh, I, yeah. I, I, like you know another Simpsons reference you know where Skinner says it's, no no it's the children who are wrong like I'm getting <laughs> to that point in my life where I'm just gradually moving away from things that young kids do Um and you can see it now on a night out. It's like, God, I feel very old here or whatever. Um, met you at other voices, actually. And yeah. that was one of those occasions where I was like, oh, my God, I just everyone here seems to be like in their early 20s. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. I felt young at that. You felt young at that. Yeah. Okay, that's probably where we're different parts of our life. But uh, TikTok, I don't even know what TikTok is. It's something to do with videos. Um, but Galway United have 55. So they must be doing something right. And now at games, the old stand in Terryland, which was effectively, if not abandoned, like kind of ignored for years, has become... 
um, the hotbed of the atmosphere now and there are all these young kind of teenage fans we'll say who congregate and make a great atmosphere and I'd say an awful lot of them are TikTok because mm. I didn't recognise them at games before and this like our last game two, our, two, our first game season had over 3,000 at it and uh, Cork City have averaged about 4,500 at their games in the first division so like there is a rising tide lifts in all boats in the league world at the moment a lot of it is social media Do you think that the TikTok kids would understand your Simpsons references this morning? That's Probably not, actually. But I hope they weren't introduced to the Simpsons by watching any of the recent series. And by that, I mean Anthony after, you know, episode series 13, because, um, you know, they, well, they wouldn't have been educated on that. But probably not, actually. Probably not. It was That was like years and years ago. Makes you think. Yeah. Uh, when you say title race, are you thinking four teams? In the well, like realistically, one or two of them are going to fall away. But at the moment, uh, Derry are one hundred percent there. Shamrock Rovers, I still think Pats have a chance, and Sligo Rovers have an outside chance. So I'm going to say for the time being, three or four, yeah, and it'll whittle down to two by sort of eight games to go, maybe. You talk about the atmosphere at uh, League of Ireland games, uh, but by is, contrast, yeah, this is a great segue. If uh, people aren't watching us this morning, I've just opened up the Irish Times. You might have heard a little uh, page turning there. Jerry Thornley's piece. He's just on a, a, a guess, a review of the Six Nations as a whole more than anything else. Uh, but the headline on it is uh, "Fitting finish on the pitch, poor one in the Aviva stands." And he, there's a couple of paragraphs here. He says once again, the Aviva atmosphere pales by comparison to Stade de France or Twickenham. One French visitor last Saturday observed it was more like an outdoor pub. Such was the constant traffic with trails, trays in the aisles. With a 21-year deal with the bars in place, this isn't going to change. But the IRFU need to look at ways of heightening the atmosphere with pre-match and interval entertainment rather than occasionally using the PA system to awaken the crowd. That was a little embarrassing. And he goes on to uh, contrast how it's the complete opposite when you're at Twickenham or at Stade de France. You've been at a couple of Six Nations games. I was there on Saturday. It is conspicuous by the, the, the chatter and the... Uh, the, the the drinking and the I guess the the celebration atmosphere that exists at all the games and like I mean I'm not one to tell anybody how to to enjoy their day or, or how, what what to do with a match but it does it's different to other stadiums it's different certainly to other events within the the Aviva Stadium I feel different to the football at this point very much so. I was at the the Wales game and the Italy game. Now, the 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 two, I suppose, the, the things. And I was actually at the Argentina game as well, part of that. But the the there was a common enough team in those games, and that there were non-events. Um, as much as the Wales game, I think Ireland were expected to win by fourteen or something like that going into it. So it was like, well, this might be competitive. But they scored a try straight away. Um, now you made the point that the Scotland game obviously actually did matter, and it was like this game wasn't the melting pot for most of it. So, so that's a, that's a difference. Yeah, like, so, like Saturday was a, was a really interesting uh, situation. Like um, just kind of sitting up in the stands like obviously we'd be very fortunate to be in the press box for a lot of these big events but whenever we're covering them or whatever and then when you're you're sitting in the stand you get a kind of I, I think actually a, a better sense of what the atmosphere is like a way better sense of what the atmosphere is like if you're sitting out in the stands and I was beside a couple of really genuine rugby fans the, the sort of people that you like you run your takes by just to sort of get some confirmation that it's like oh yeah I'm thinking the right thing here but there's no question that in the kind of the background and everywhere around you really there's just this constant drone of chatter it's like being in the the smoking area of toners and that's 
on a day when Ireland are going for the Triple Crown. And now that well, could, toners like that reference, do you think? Uh, They'll be happy enough. Well, like, I mean, uh, people are happy and chatting yeah. and... Um, oh, and the atmosphere was so shite. Like, it was so bad, I couldn't get over it. And maybe I had to reflect on the fact that maybe it's me who's wrong here because I'm not a massive rugby fan. But strangely enough, then... Um, during that sort of spell or a couple of, I don't know, a couple of months where I went to a few games, RTE showed the Where's Your Pride documentary from the 80s. And like the, the, the hairs were rising in the back of my neck watching Ireland win a triple crown before I was even born because the atmosphere in Lansdowne was amazing. Ireland was in a really bad place economically at the time. The team obviously wasn't really expected to be beating England and Twickenham or whatever. And like, oh my God, it was amazing atmosphere. And sadly, as countries get wealthier, um, and you've like a lot of wealthy people at rugby games and it's kind of a day out. There's a lot of drinking. It just doesn't matter as much anymore. And it, it, it like, I could not get over how bad the atmosphere was. The one, the first Leinster game I went to, and I, I always, kind of give out about the League of Ireland that it's so male dominated the Leinster game was really different like and that's a good thing obviously but there are like three women in front of me they were on about biodegradable straws during the game and I was like you would not get that a League of Ireland game and I don't know what I don't know who the people are who go to rugby games like because I've been a bit of a day tripper at them but I was surprised at an event like the Six Nations where the atmosphere was so forgettable and it was actually kind of alarmingly bad because I would go to League of Ireland games with 2,000 people would be a far better atmosphere and the atmosphere matters like it it draws you back and it really draws you back and watch the like some of the stories from the the rugby of the 80s like I know it was an amateur game but it was just um, it was a different era but I I was really taken aback by how bad the atmosphere was I think that there's a couple of mitigating factors I agree with you but I think there are a couple of mitigating factors from Saturday in particular first of all there could be a little bit of truth in the fact that maybe the Triple Crown isn't what it once was and that's because of Ireland Irish rugby's own success second of all I think Scotland and deep down uh, it, we, we do not deserve to have this sense of superiority over any country but there, I think there is deep down a sense that at the moment Ireland are a better team than Scotland and even going into Lansdowne Road on Saturday was, this, were, was this, there this real sense of jeopardy around the fixture I'm not sure there was yeah. and even though Ireland were sloppy and maybe Scotland could have got something on the break throughout the game it never felt like the game was in danger it never felt like Ireland were going to do anything but win the triple crown on the afternoon that's just my opinion it ju- I, I just maybe that's overconfidence but I just felt that that was never going to happen and I do think that that seeps into the crowd. What I'd love to hear is anybody who was at the Wales game, for example, on the opening day, and who was at the Scotland game on Saturday. Were there, were there different atmospheres? I don't know. Like you can drop us a, a, a text. Uh, that's the comparison I'd like to make. Because when I was sitting there, I was like, "What? Well, right? If this was England or France, then this would be very, very different." Because mm. it, no matter what's on the line, whether it's triple crown or it's just a, a summer test, you want to beat England and France. And I just feel that maybe Scotland don't have that place anymore. Uh, in, in the view of the Irish uh, and I think that's a bit of a mitigating factor but there is that's not enough to to explain the entire difference between that and say even in a Republic of Ireland friendly match in football at the end of last year um, like would, would, it de- definitely felt like more of an occasion or, or it certainly so, felt like the sport was more important totally the, like the Portugal game which obviously like was a you know didn't matter to us there was a great atmosphere that game yeah. and um, you know if you if if you think about it the if you look at even the the main sort of football stadia, we'll say, in Europe, and if you go to a game in, like, if you go to a Barcelona game, Real Madrid game, Man City game, maybe even a PSG game, these are all at um, 
grounds where the home fans expect to win. They're pretty generally fairly well off people. They're not like um, struggling in life so much. The atmosphere is rubbish. Like it's really bad. I, if you're I, constantly I, winning, it's just boring. Well, I was at a PSG game last year and mm-hmm. it was amazing. Right, absolutely. But I was in the middle of the ultras, so that maybe yeah. was different. But and maybe there was a lot of people uh, in the kind of more expensive seats who weren't like that. So I don't know. But PSG w- are probably sorry. I was They're- actually taken aback by how good it was. Right. I was expecting a Man City atmosphere, and yeah. it turned out I just actually was completely uneducated on the history of the club, really, as much as anything. Else. I, I, I think right. If you if you watch back on and and this is the this is the sad part about getting older because f- sport just matters a little bit less as the years go on. Unfortunately, mm. it's never the same as like that. Like when I was in 1995 and Galway ended up winning the Connacht title, like I remember being at home with my parents, my, my brother and father that summer. All we did was talk about Galway Mayo and Galway Tyrone and that was all we spoke about. And the, the older you get, maybe you meet women or whatever, you're like, okay, well, sport isn't quite what it is. But the, I just think that Ireland in the 80s, the Triple Crown in, was it 80, 85, I think, in 80, Two, I think they won it, 85 and 82. I just think it mattered far more to the people. It mattered far more. They were downtrodden. Um, they, Ireland weren't really expected to be beaten, to be winning triple crowns. Um, and as much as an amateur sport, they were beating England. There was a lot of, like, a lot of people were leaving the country. It, was a, it wasn't a great time to be living in Ireland. Sport just lifted the country. I don't think there's any lift to, like, going to an Ireland rugby game now relative to then. I just don't think it matters to people as much. Maybe I'm wrong. A uh, bit of reaction to this conversation. Thomas says, biggest issue with rugby is you spend your time getting up and down out of your seat, letting people in with drink, you need to ban alcohol in the stands. Like, this is the thing, I'm very uh, reluctant to tell people what to do. If you want a pint, you should be able to get it. But maybe there's a situation where the concourse is where the pint should stay or something yeah. like that, just to stop you up and down. I, I, I'm not sure. I think that obviously there's been a pretty uh, famous couple of examples in the Principality Stadium over the last year or so where they've had to try to combat this a little but they've actually had to reduce the percentage of the, the Heineken in the, the, the principality to try and combat this. Uh, Edward says the atmosphere in Paris was amazing. French fans go to the game and no one goes to the bar mid-game, which is interesting. Is that, Edward, is that actually because you can't do it? Because I think that if it's available, people are going to go and do it. They're going to go to, to, the, to the bar. Bido says, uh, no surprises that the atmosphere at the rugby is terrible. Full of day trippers out for a few sticks of Heinomite. And um, Dara says, when do we find out that we haven't qualified for the Euros in Ireland? <laughs> Which is uh, probably a couple of years yet. The good news on that one, Dara, is that it is going to go to 32 teams, it seems. Yeah, well, that's 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 very, very wrong as well. Like, I mean, 32 teams in the Euros. Like, seriously. I remember when it was eight. And yeah. that might have been a bit little. And, and you know, we can say, oh, the likes of Iceland brought so much, but, like, why don't we just have everyone there, sure, at this stage? I mean, that's absolutely absurd. Like, I, like, how, how irrelevant are qualifications going to be now? Like, 32 teams. How many teams are in Europe? Like, 52 or something? Yeah. I mean, seriously, like, that's just, that's just completely mad. Um, like, and then, sure, there's, there's no great joy about qualifying if it's, they're just gifting it to you. Um, not that we necessarily would anyway, but, like, I don't know. Sometimes you despair at these things. I guess what will happen is that maybe the qualifiers will be possibly close to being phased out and the Nations League becomes the main thing and there's only mm. the, the bottom tier teams who might have to qualify. I don't know how that looks or, or how the calendar looks, but mm. definitely the, it, there's definitely been a kind of a move towards the idea of like England playing Andorra and qualifiers is pointless and then allied with that you have more qualifiers as well on top mm. of that. So we'll see how that goes. Just we've got a, a few minutes before we get to, to Chris Jones. I just wanted to get a, your kind of like final takeaways from Cheltenham last week. Obviously you were, you were bed bound or house bound at least for, for most of us. Um, 
a lot of FOMO, I presume, but did it change your experience much watching it on TV as opposed to being there? Because I presume you've been there every year for the last yeah, little while. Yeah, I was there in 2020 and like that was just such a strange experience. So then I um, missed it last year, obviously. Um, well, not obviously, I could have gone, but I racing without anyone there it was a soulless experience like so I didn't miss that um, like I see the chat about the five day festival on I mean like there was a, a meeting in Britain yesterday was this um, I think it was Fontwell um, where the average field size was 5.33 you just did the did the maths that was a jumps meeting like there was a novice chase obviously a four runner novice chase at Cheltenham with all Irish runners a six runner novice chase with all Irish runners um, the championship race is absolutely dominated by Ireland um, I mean a five day festival where are they going with this I mean get rid of the mayor's races for a start like they shouldn't be there like why do we have these mayor's novice hurdles mayor's novice chases sorry mayor's chases mayor's hurdles they should be they should be cutting it back to three days and getting rid of the rubbish races and making it a real festival what it was like they should be alarmed at field sizes like four and six and novice chases Cheltenham should be where everyone goes and even if you have a small chance it's to be all and end all we now have a situation where British trainers are, are actually avoiding it because they don't think it's worth their while at their own festival at their own festival they were whitewashed in the championship races like absolutely whitewashed and they're on about moving it five days it'll therefore be more like Galway and Listowel and Cheltenham like and mm. it's ridiculous to suggest like I didn't actually I know William Mullen spoke about doing it the right way but there's no right way of, of five days it would really really take away from it and it, to me the four days isn't what the three days was I think there were alarming signs of the festival this year in terms of where it where it was and where it should be and five days would be a disgrace in my view Well, ju- Just to be devil's advocate on that if we go back to the sort of day trippers point uh, if I was at Cheltenham I would be very much a day tripper. I'd be mm. there for the the betting and the drinking. Let's put it bluntly. I, I know Cheltenham is a far more serious race hopefully meeting. Hopefully in that punters. order. Uh, hopefully in that order. It's yeah. a far more serious race meeting than entry, for example. It is proper racing people who go. But there are, I presume, a lot of people who go for the crack as well. Is that not all that matters in the end to the people who actually run it where it's like these people are gonna, still going to show up for a fifth day they're still going to go close to selling the whole thing out for a fifth day they're still going to buy a drink they're still going to bet and it, the, the whole thing will be a massive commercial success? Um, well no and it's a similar argument to the 32 teams it's like well sure why don't we just have everyone here then and like everyone can win race like I, I have to say Cheltenham does not mean the same to me as it did for as a three day right. festival they're just you can't like you can't look at like a six runner National Hunt Novices Chase and think this is right and like it's not it's not the Irish domination conversely has been I think has been a bit of a negative in that like we've one trainer Willie Mullins totally dominating 10 winners you know uh, 10 winners from 28 races where the British trainers are struggling like again it was a bit like Ireland winning the triple crown in the 80s like for Ireland to have winners when I started getting into Cheltenham was a novelty really like they'd have winners but it was a small thing and now the handicap this week was Ireland was expected to win at least eight races more than the British that's that's not normal like and the four day festival for me just hasn't it hasn't worked and it's diluted the the value of winning a Cheltenham race for sure I mean for sure if you can now go over there and win like a mayor's novice hurdle well you shouldn't be running that race you should be, ta- you should be running the supreme like and it's there for the grace of God Honeysuckle would never have run in the champion hurdle she could have just won these rubbishy mayor's hurdles if, if connections wanted her to go that way yeah. um, and that's the that's the problem if you dilute and dilute and dilute eventually it doesn't taste very good anymore yeah absolutely uh, I should say Edward's been back in touch and said there's beer on sale but the French fans weren't interested well the French uh, are just they, they drink, they drink wine and they've a totally better attitude to boozing than we have uh, that's also a very fair point but that is interesting. Uh, one man who was at the start of the France on Saturday was Chris Jones of the BBC. We're going to be chatting to him next.
This is OTB Sports Radio. Welcome back. It is ten past eight. We are turning our attention back to the Six Nations because France have got back into the winner's enclosure. They are Grand Slam champions and one person who was there to watch them do it on Saturday night was Chris Jones, BBC Rugby Union correspondent. Chris, good morning to you. Hey, how's it going, guys? Good to be here. Yeah, very well, thanks. How good was that atmosphere, first of all, on Saturday night? How special did this feel for the French public that they'd finally got back winning? Momentous occasion. Really was special. I was lucky enough to be uh, there in round two for the Ireland game as well. And the crowd was just was just sensational as well that, that, that evening. There was definitely an air of, of trepidation around and nervousness. You know, pre-game, there was a party atmosphere. But when the game started, you feel an early try would have settled some nerves. And if Fiku had caught that ball when they sliced England open, that may have just got the crowd going. But yeah, it, uh, France had, had England at arm's length throughout, didn't they? It got back to five points at, at one time. But when... Antoine Dupont scored what round about the hour mark to take it out to 12. The roof came off, and uh, yeah, look, it was uh, it was a, a fulfilment and an, a, a sign that this French, another sign, this French crowd are incredibly behind the French team and French rugby is in a great place. What's your sense at the moment of where the teams of the Six Nations exist? If we were to put them into tiers, is it is it France out on a tier of their own with four teams in the middle and, and Italy at the bottom, or, or how would you categorize them? No, no. I'd say it's France, then a, then a small gap to Ireland, and then a big gap to the rest. Right. And the table doesn't lie. Mm. You know, this isn't this isn't a sort of oh, the, there's a you know a win here and a win there. What France twenty four points, Ireland twenty one, England Scotland on ten. You know, over the course of just a five match tournament, a gap of eleven points is is market a sizable gap. Um, and that was the way it was was borne out. Look, Ireland weren't quite good enough to win at the Stade de France. They started poorly. They didn't have Johnny Sexton. Uh, but apart from that, they smashed everyone. You know, they won the Triple Crown at a canter. That doesn't really happen. I know England had a red card at Twickenham, but to put 32 points on, to beat Scotland with a bonus point, to take Wales to the cleaners, there is a big gap between Ireland and the rest at, at the moment. That's not to say it can't be narrowed. Of course it can. It can be narrowed really quickly. But yeah, that, that table paints a clear picture that France is the best team in Europe. Ireland are behind, but not loads and loads behind. And then the rest are just, uh, you know, to use a racing parlance, scrabbling for the places. Nice, nice racing parlance. Uh, a lot, lot of racing parlance. I'm, I'm intrigued by that, Chris. Like, I'm not a big rugby fan, but I did not get the impression at Twickenham that Ireland were much better than England at all. I thought if they were 15 v 15, they would have struggled to even win the game. Hard to say. And look, it's also that the home factor and the way England played with 14 was really admirable. Um, but I felt almost watching that game back, it's like Ireland's performance improved on on second viewing because you saw how how well they were able to to pick England apart and then they were kind of almost guilty of a bit what France were doing on the weekend just forcing things desperately wanting you know things to go to hand to to settle them, them down and they probably forced it a bit much with the red tried offloads they wouldn't have done otherwise against 15 men so it's it's kind of hypothetical to say whether England and Ireland are on the the same page because the the score lines don't you know don't don't show that Ireland put them to the to the sword in Dublin last year and then beat them 32-15 at Twickenham and I know it could have been a different story with 15 but it wasn't 15 so we're, we're talking about ifs and buts candy and nuts there aren't we so I, I think um I think probably uh it would well, be hard for any any England fanning to argue that they are they're up there with Ireland when you look at at the, the tournament as a whole. Uh, the mood music around England is the main reason why we wanted to speak to you this morning, Chris, because it's two wins and three sure. defeats two years in a row. 
at this point. The RFU have been grabbing plenty of headlines deliberately over the last couple of days, it seems. Uh, they said that they will conduct a campaign debrief in the next fortnight and Jones is going to hold a review with feedback from his assistants and players. They released a statement saying that Eddie Jones is building a New England team and against a clear strategy, we are encouraged by the solid progress the team has made during this Six Nations campaign. The RFU continues to fully support Eddie, the coaching team and players and we are excited about the summer tour and the progress to rebuild a winning England team. So they fully believe that Eddie Jones is the man for the job. In fact, they believe this has been a pretty good Six Nations. Yeah, it's 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 quite incredible, actually. I think it's hard to read that that statement with a straight face. And to be clear, you know, it's not an open and shut case. It's it's not a, the, the the case that Eddie Jones has got to go. That is that is not the case. Eddie Jones can still turn England around. He can still get to a semi final of that World Cup, if not better. But to talk about solid progress when England had the same number of match points, fewer tries, same number of defeats as last year, it's disingenuous, isn't it? And it's either very naive that they think England fans will buy this or it's done purely to try and stave off any speculation about Jones's future, in which case it's insulting to England fans. So I can't see the, this, how this is a good look. I can't see how this any, anyone at the RFU thought, yeah, let, let's do this. And Last year, there was a big root and branch review into England's poor campaign. But before that review, Conor O'Shea and and Bill Sweeney were on a press call. And Conor O'Shea especially was incredibly supportive of, of Eddie Jones. So these reviews are happening, but it, you, it, you can't see much changing. Eddie Jones answers to Bill Sweeney, the chief executive only. Sweeney's done a lot of really good work over the past few years, but he's a novice in rugby terms when it comes to administration. He's only worked in rugby since 2019. Jones has made it clear that uh, someone above him can't really tell him what to do unless they've coached international rugby. So it really is Eddie Jones's way or the highway. There isn't a way really that Twickenham can challenge Eddie Jones because what Eddie Jones says at the moment they seem to be buying. So it, it's not a, it's not a great situation, and the, the people I think who are who are probably feeling a little bit disrespected are the hard you know the hardworking England fans who are paying a load of money to go to Twickenham, a load of money to support them on the road and are being told two wins out of five is, is very good progress. Were any details from that Root and Branch review last year leaked at all to the media? They put out a big kind of analysis. And again, I'm, uh, you know, just to be clear, I think the RFU have done a lot of really good stuff over the last year. They've been dealt some rotten hands with, with COVID and everything else that's been going on. But again, that report last year was a farce. It was risable. They spoke about covid and bubbles short not great at all very tricky but the same for all sides they spoke about alignment with the premiership clubs as if the premiership clubs are a new thing as if this club country situation and structure in england suddenly was magic up overnight they were speaking about uh, technique at the breakdown this is the most experienced england team of all time saying that they were technically and tactically deficient and that the, the only people who didn't seem to have any blame apportioned to them from the review last year was Eddie Jones and his coaches. And they actually said, oh, because I think it was Jason Riles wasn't able to fly over from Australia, that disrupted things as well. So you can always find an excuse, can't you? You can, you know, I, I hear a lot of, of noises coming out of the England camp that, oh, our, our running meters are really high, really high running meters, getting to the 22 a lot. But that's the same as saying in soccer or football, put loads of crosses in the box that's the job done it's about scoring goals scoring tries scoring points France spent less than a minute in the red zone and scored four tries that, that's test rugby it's being clinical so 
There's lots that you hear that make you feel a little bit uncomfortable about the direction things are taking. There is no doubt Eddie Jones can turn it around. He's done it before. But I think it would be advisable for people at the RFU just to front up and say, this hasn't been great for two Six Nations in a row. And, um, and I think the fans deserve that honesty. Eddie Jones has said that there's a 3% gap between where England are currently and where they need to get next year. Is that the same gap that England felt they had to, I guess, get over in 2018? Because I guess that's a little bit of a mirror image, especially given Ireland beat them near to the end of the championship and there's a, there's a World Cup coming the following year. Yeah, yeah, it's, it is a mirror, mirror image. Three, I just I don't know, 3%, that's so arbitrary. Yeah. Where does, where does 3%... <laughs> I don't, I don't know. What, I, I'm not sure how, how we're meant to react to that. 3%. So an England fan goes, oh, it's only 3%. That's not much. <laughs> Great. I I, sorry. I, I, I'm, again, Eddie, look, Eddie Jones puts a lot of stats out there and you have to take a lot of them with a pinch of salt. Some are bang on accurate and you go, oh, it's really perceptive. And some you just go, I, I, I'm not sure how to react to that. The 18 and 19 things are really interesting, Mira. You're right. Because England were, were terrible in 18. I remember Ireland came to Twickenham on around about Paddy's Day and freezing cold day at Twickenham, beating at a canter at Twickenham. You thought, wow, people shouldn't be coming to, the, to, the, to win the Grand Slam at a canter like that. That was a brilliant Ireland performance and a poor England one. They went to South Africa in the summer, got beaten twice and then cobbled together a decent enough autumn and then came out the blocks in Dublin in 2019. However, England had a core then in 2019 and going into the 2019 Rugby World Cup uh, of the Saracens core, with both Bonapolas fit and firing, Jamie George, Maru Atoje, so half of the forward pack, Manu Tuolangi fitting in the midfield, and the Ford Farrell access, which really was England's USP. And England have had an extraordinary number of assistant coaches running attack over the last six years. Eddie Jones, Martin Gleeson, Ed Robinson has done skills. Sam Vesti's had a bit. Glenn Ellis done a bit. Scott Wisemantle's done a bit. Roy Teague's done a bit. It's hard to keep up. The constants have always been George Ford and Owen Farrell. They've run England's attack. They have been the creative rugby intellectual hubs of that England team. Farrell's been injured. Ford's been sidelined. The Saracens' core has been sidelined. Eddie Jones has been really clear to move away from them. Manitoulin is not fit. Who knows when and if he will be fit for England going forward in the future. So all the pillars that made England super strong in 2019 just aren't there. And that's Eddie Jones's choice to do that. Of course, Farrell and Tuolangi are injured. That, that's tough to take. But you just worry that it's a, not long to the World Cup and loads of rugby to play still, of course, but England are trying a completely different style and going away from some of the pillars that made them strong in 2019. They're talking a lot about attack, but we're not seeing it on the pitch. So, of course, England can turn it around. They'll, they could have a quarterfinal against Australia or Wales and get to a semi. But is it this, it's this jam tomorrow, it'll be all right on the night, World Cup's all that counts, that I think leaves some, some England fans and people following the rugby a little bit uncomfortable because you saw on Saturday night how important the Six Nations is, how important the Grand Slam is. And I wonder if England could be focusing on the here and now first and then looking at the World Cup a bit later. What'll be interesting then is, is this summer. Does this summer and the Australia tests, a resurgent Australia no less, does, does that put pressure on Eddie Jones in terms of his position or do you think regardless of what happens there even if it's three defeats he's fine it's it's hard isn't it because you could either say it's all about results in which case England could you know have play, play a very kicking tactical territorial orientated game like they did in 2020 which got them some some handy wins albeit most of them at Twickenham um 
or you could say it's about performance and building a structure that is going to be successful on the medium medium term basis. But at the moment, England are doing neither. They're neither showing this brand new England Eddie Jones has spoken a lot about, and they're not also winning matches. RFU seem to be so squarely behind Eddie Jones that they can go and lose 3-0 in Australia and he would still survive because the World Cup is everything and that's all that counts in their eyes. But I think if he was to lose 3-0 and also not show any discernible signs of progress in terms of an identity, structure or style, then I think the questions will come will come thick and fast. And I, and I think in our, the RFU's attempt to shut down any talk about Jones and his future by putting up this statement, it's almost fuel in the fire because people will go, well, this statement doesn't make sense. This is what's wrong with England. So it's a... It's a tricky time for England at the moment. They've been here before in 2018. Eddie Jones has been here before. He's got loads of experience, but it's certainly a, a tricky time. And I don't know how many England fans could be totally confident they're going to turn it around on the short, medium or long-term basis. Could we just entertain the, the, the prospect that the, the RFU may be looking elsewhere at the end of the summer then? Because it's, it's a really interesting conversation and it's been written about quite a bit since Saturday. Like the London Times, for example, have a two-page spread this morning on who the Eddie Jones successors might be. You've got Warren Gatlin's name in there. You've got Andy Farrell's name in there. You've got Razzie Erasmus's name in there. Uh, to, to be fair to them, a lot of them are saying, no, they're, they're just not going to be available. They're going to be impossible to get. But if we just throw... Warren Gatlin's name out there at the moment because he is relatively gettable compared to some of those other names. Is that a realistic future for the RFU that they, they work with Warren Gatland? See, it's hard, isn't it, to talk about other other people and um, replacements for a guy who's still in his job. And I don't want to be all, all pious about it, but you know, it, it's I, 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 you know, Eddie Jones is, is still in this job, and the RFU have made it really clear they are back in their man. I mean, Warren Gatland does, you know, would make would make sense in wants to you know he, he's I think he would want to coach England one day and basically have a go with it, all the things and all the, the great um, things you have in place when it comes to England rugby and I don't think it would be impossible to get him out of the Chiefs on an 18 month deal before going to an English based coach like an Alex Sanderson or probably a Steve Borthwick after 2023 but I think that's kind of hy- hypothetical um, because at the moment Jones is in his job and the RFU are showing no signs of wanting to make a change before 2023 and, that, and that's cool that's totally cool. If the RFU want to stick to their strategy, which they put out in 2019 of giving Eddie Jones four more years, that, that, that's their, completely their prerogative. I think I need to be a little bit more upfront with the England fans and acknowledge when things aren't going so well and not just say, oh, everything's fine. Nothing to see here. It'll be all right come, come 2023. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 what I do think is saying it's too close to the World Cup or there are no other candidates for any job, regardless of whether we're talking about England or another rugby nation, Scotland, Wales, whoever it might be under under pressure at the moment, saying there is no one else or it's too close to the World Cup. Those aren't good enough reasons to keep someone if the union don't think they're doing a good enough job. That, that can't be the right reasoning. Oh, there's no one else with all the coaches around the world or it's too close. When you look at the numerous examples of teams ch- changing their head coach really close to World Cup and still being successful. So I don't buy them as reasonings for not changing a coach, but... The are if you are squarely behind Eddie Jones, and I, I don't think they're in any mood for changing um, whatever this review throws up. Just just on the Andy Farrell situation, like what's his kind of rep in England now after um, this Six Nations, and how do they? How is he generally viewed in terms of being the future England manager? Yeah, I mean high reputation, and all the all the England guys from 2015 have a high reputation. They might they might find that that uh, ironic, given that the tough time they got after that home World Cup, but it was a very it was quite a young and inexperienced coaching group at 2015. You know, I know Graham Rounds had been, had been around a bit before and Andy Farrell obviously was, 
incredible player. Stuart Lancaster coached through the system, but not many of them had sat on the halfway line in a World Cup do-or-die must-win game, and maybe that inexperience showed. You go forward a few years now, what are we, you know, 2022, seven-odd years on from um, from 2015, and you've got all of them now steeped in more experience with Farrell and Cat, especially getting more international experience. Lancaster working wonders at Leinster and being a big part of that, that, that Leinster cohesion and strategy that we're seeing with the Ireland team. So all of those guys have a really good reputation. Farrell, actually, Eddie Jones tried to get back in 2018 when John Mitchell moved on. But, you know, I think what he had going on at Ireland with taking over from Joe Schmidt was too good to too good to, to leave. And there wasn't probably an, enough reassurance at Twickenham about his long term future. Um, but certainly Andy Farrell is earmarked to coach England uh, as a head coach at one time in the future, whether it's in 2023 or beyond that. Because I think that was possibly one of the things that held that up at the time was Andy Farrell wanted a clear path to become head coach again and maybe that wouldn't have worked as somebody on Eddie Jones's ticket at the time. Yeah, I, I, I actually don't know that for sure, but I know people have, who, who, who do know that have written that, if that makes any sense. Sure. So I think when, when, when Andy Farrell um, came in, he wanted some kind of, you know, maybe not, not a reassurance, but maybe just a... Um, a sign that there was a pathway to him being a head coach one day. Ambitious guy, we know. You know, we, we know his ambition. We know he, he didn't just want to be pigeonholed as a defence coach because he's gone on coaching Ireland and winning a triple crown as a head coach. So I think he, he would want, if he came to England, that kind of reassurance, which he maybe didn't get at the time. And maybe when it was that kind of 2018, Eddie Jones was 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 down to do another four years. And um, yeah, so I, I think I think when it comes to 2023, the RFU do have a plan. They've not made it totally clear, but I think they have a plan. I think Steve Borthwick is a major content. I think they're looking closely at Alex Sanderson. And then they've got people like Sean Edwards, Andy Farrell. There are English coaches or English-based coaches all around at the moment doing good things. One of them, two, three, four, will be involved come 2023. But at the moment, they are wedded to this Eddie Jones He'll get it right in France project. And just to reiterate, that, that is fine. That is their, their prerogative. But yeah, to say that the team's in a, in a good spot, loads of progress, and because they've got plenty of running meters, everything's okay. Yeah, just to repeat myself, that I don't think is, is exactly what the England fans want to hear. I, but I do think there is something happening after 2023. But it's not about 2023 at the moment. It's about 2022 going forward, the next few championships and, and how England shape up there. Just one last question then. You mentioned Conor O'Shea and his involvement obviously in the Rudin Branch review last year. He's going to be involved this year obviously in the advisory panel. Uh, he's the director of performance at the RFU. It, it's sometimes very hard to get a sense of, of how well somebody's doing in a job, especially in the, the hierarchy of a, of a rugby union like that. Uh, but, but have you heard anything? Have you seen anything to, 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 to suggest that, that Conor O'Shea is doing a, a good job or otherwise? Or, or what have you heard about his role so far? Well, I think there are, are some facets which seem to be going really well and some less so. Um, the, the England women are a brilliant team, the best in the world. They're on this magic unbeaten run. They're Grand Slam champions. They'll go for another slam. The Premier 15s is building and a lot of his remit has been over the women's game. And he's done a great job from that point of view. But also his remit is in terms of the pathways and the England under 20s just flopped in their Six Nations. Um, and you don't get the sense from Eddie Jones that he thinks there are loads of talent in the club game because of the amount of times he brings someone in, gives them a couple of caps and then and then bins them off. So um, Conor O'Shea is responsible for the professional game as a whole. Conor is one of the great men of rugby and an incredible communicator. And I think us in the media are all very surprised at how anonymous and low profile he's been over the past few years. I think we all thought he would be much more of a, a face and a voice of Twickenham 
and maybe sitting not above Eddie Jones, but certainly offering that rugby IQ to challenge Eddie Jones. But it does seem as if any the only person Eddie Jones is answerable to is the chief executive, Bill Sweeney. And Eddie Jones has written in one of his leadership books, no chief executive who hasn't coached can really tell the, the head coach how to coach. So we're in a situation where it, it, Eddie Jones... Do, actually, by the way, it, it's, it's operating. Eddie Jones does not have enough people pushing back on him because it doesn't seem as if Conor O'Shea is doing it. And Bill Sweeney, I think he's prepared to accept Eddie Jones' explanations, as that statement would have shown. So it's actually hard to review Conor's job in the round because we hear from him so little. Mm. Um, certainly, the you know aspects like the women's game are going really well. I think in terms of coach ID and development, that's going much better. And that may bear fruit come 2023 but it's hard because a lot of that is going on behind the scenes okay very interesting it's going to be a fascinating 18 months at say in english rugby and one we keep a close eye on chris great stuff thanks a million for your time this morning thanks for having me on nice one cheers chris jones there he's the rugby union correspondent with the bbc shedding some light on what's going on over there at the moment in england and plenty of reaction to that chat John has been in touch to say this should be no surprise England were abysmal in 2018 and went on to reach the World Cup final in 2019 Eddie Jones is there to win the World Cup and nothing else Judge England after the Six Nations 2023 I would tend to agree with that I I would uh, definitely feel that I think I actually said in the show a couple of weeks ago that if you ask England fans would they be happy with Eddie Jones they would say yes I'm clearly wrong about that I don't think England fans are, are happy at all at the moment but I think I'm viewing that from an Irish prism that we would give everything up just for some World Cup success mm. and Eddie Jones proved four years ago that that's exactly what he did and on fairness Chris Jones did make the point that there's every chance that, that happens and Fergus has also been in touch to say England sacrificed this Six Nations to give game time to guys like Smith Randall Stewart Ireland played Sexton Murray and O'Mahony where possible what did England learn what did Ireland learn and that's a, that's a very interesting point because England possibly we'll be looking around saying they learned loads and this the, the, the pillars that, that Chris Jones spoke about there might be back in the team they'll be Eddie Jones might say well that was a complete car crash uh, let's, let's just go back to, to what worked for me before and, and away they go now I would say what did Ireland learn is an interesting question it feels to me and I could be this could be a complete naive feeling it feels to me as if Ireland have more of a distance to go to reach their ceiling this, at this stage than they did four years ago it felt like at the end of 2018 granted it's a Grand Slam versus a Triple Crown it felt everything's perfect this is the best Irish team ever whereas it felt like there was actual negativity after winning in Twickenham for obvious reasons there was a bit of negativity after the weekend it doesn't feel as if people are getting carried away as much this year as they were four years ago obviously it's not a Grand Slam this time but it feels that there's a lot of development that needs to go and I think Ireland definitely learned that their front row needs a little bit more depth that they're going to be able to live with a team like France and I think that'll definitely be the case uh, against a team like South Africa and chances are they're going to be playing France and they're definitely going to be playing South Africa at the end of next year so I think Ireland learned plenty but I definitely agree with with the point on England that uh, they possibly learned the most of any team in this year's Six Nations so be interesting to see how that goes over the next little while just to tell you uh, it's time to get ready to cheer Ireland on in the TikTok Women's Six Nations to launch this year's campaign we are giving away two tickets to see Ireland take on Wales on Saturday the 26th of March at quarter to five at the RDS that's this Saturday the lucky winners will also be entered into a draw to be in with a chance to win an overnight stay in the stunning Intercontinental Hotel on the night of the game to enter this competition tell us what you think the score will be this weekend between Ireland and Wales wherever you're watching this morning's OTBAM just comment on Twitter Facebook or YouTube International Women's Rugby is at the RDS and there is nothing like it be part of the action get your tickets at ticketmaster.ie time for the papers there are so many idiots out there so many spoofers there's a lot of horse I think he's a total spoofer. What do you mean, a spoofer? He's a bullshit. Ah, no, Emma, come on, don't be, don't be, no, I'm not, no. 
Rugby leading the way in the Irish Times this morning, which we'll get to in just a sec, just as you can see on screen there, DOTB Sports homepage, episode 9 of the Football Pod, Coaching Dummies, Lee Chaos and James Pixes. You'll have to click in to find out. Uh, Luis Enrique will not abandon Spain if offered the United job, says Guillain Balaguer. He was on the show last night. And Udinese, as we mentioned earlier on, confirmed the signing of Festia Baselli. He's a type of coach you want to play for. That's Fiona Hayes on Greg McWilliams. And is the Hurling League of Farce semi-finals confirmed? Those are the conversation topics on the Hurling pod. And I presume a bit of Cheltenham chat as well with one James Scahill. Flooring Porter story to read, yeah, uh, yeah, like that, that. That was one of the aspects of Shelton that was so badly lost last year. And to uh, you know, Flooring Porter won at Shelton last year, but nobody really knows about that. You know, it's like the tree falls in the forest didn't make a sound because they made a such a great noise at Shelton. And like he was bought, I think he was bought on Facebook for buttons. And um, I got involved in a <laughs> I got involved in a horse with Gavin Cromwell by the same stallion. Um, for a similar, like, price, but like, our syndicate is just hoping that he wins any race, you know, and like at the bottom level, and that'd be that'd be just great. But they're winning like two stairs hurdles, um, and that's the dream that you have to believe is possible, and it kind of still is in national hunt racing, even though it's very hard, um, because generally the good horses are snapped up by it's like the best football clubs do the ones with the money win everything and it's a bit like that in racing now that the the graduates from the point to point yards they all go to like the top owners um, and you've on one level then you've Ginto like who's bought by Noel Moran and Valerie Moran who costs like 500 grand give or take and he's coming to win his race and ends up like breaking his leg and you've that's the one level of it where the money can buy you like the most promising horse and you're still at the whim of the gods really and then on the other level you have a horse that costs buttons winning two stairs hurdles so it's a mad game it's a mad yeah. game but James Gale certainly seems to enjoy it we'll come back to that in just a second because uh, John Duggan's outside and he was actually in the winner's enclosure with uh, James last week at the Irish Times leads with some more review from the Six Nations France and Ireland dominate Jerry Thornley's team of the championship we mentioned this piece earlier on as well about uh, the Aviva Stadium atmosphere which uh, isn't great at uh, the back page of the Irish Independent Ireland to be confirmed as co-host for Euro 2028 absence of a rival bid ahead of the imminent cutoff means April announcement on the cards and uh, Devon Toner there photographed on the back of the Independent as well stretching his legs during Nancy training yesterday having announced that he's going to retire from rugby at the end of the season uh, The Guardian goes with uh, the headline shortlist narrowing Chelsea's preferred bidder may emerge by the end of this week uh, and it's a great feeling when you come back and show what you can do that's uh, Arsenal's Leah Walty on uh, coping with criticism and excitement of playing at the Emirates The Telegraph leads with the Euros story UK and Ireland will co-host Euro 2028 as rivals fail to bid the back of the Irish Sun is an interesting one King Eric Dutch boss is number one pick after dossiers examined recruitment work has Ajax boss ahead of Poch details on the dossiers uh, not really flush into peace to be quite honest with you but apparently the dossiers exist and Eric Ten Hag is the man uh, that they want to coach Manchester United next season so let's see if that uh, turns out to, to actually happen back page of the mirror is stop the chance for Roman former Chelsea and Ukraine star Shevchenko an emotional plea to fans over Abramovich songs Green Party meanwhile is the back of the Irish Daily Star Ireland to get nod to co-host Euro 2028 that is the story on the back of the Irish Daily Mail a Eurovision, UK and Ireland are sole bid for 2028 finals. And Rachel's a toast of racing. Uh, she was there with uh, a Plutard photographed yesterday. 
back of the London Times, UK set to host Euro 2028, lack of rivals, clear path for joint bid with Ireland, and then the Herald, finally. The Euro's coming here in 2028. You've got a few there as well, John. This is, yeah, I think we've done the, the, the Indo, have we? Yeah. yeah so they, just the examiner coming home, um, and there's obviously a photo of Lanzarone Road, um, which would be amazing to see a uh, tournament there. Third man in, Eustace. Um, handball emerges from the fog of COVID as well. It's an interesting piece. Uh, John Fogarty on about David Clifford. And this piece as well, I think, uh, Tommy Lyons, Honeysuckle, um, next season likely to be Honeysuckle's last in track. And JD is in the house now. Hopefully, JD, she might actually retire, retire without being beaten. Yeah, morning, Johnny and Owen. And yeah, it's 15 out of 15. Constitution Hill, I think, is the, is the question mark, really, isn't it? Constitution Hill won that race, the Supreme Novice Hurdle, in a record time. The first race of the festival, 22 lengths. Will Constitution Hill end up over hurdles against Honeysuckle next year? I think the one thing I would say about the whole thing is we don't know. It's a, an incredible training achievement in itself for Henry de Bromhead to train Honeysuckle to win back-to-back and then have a Plutard Minel Indo fill the first two places in the Gold Cup uh, in successive years. So getting these horses there is the first thing. But it would be really brilliant to see her win three in a row like Istabrak did and um, Sir Ken, wasn't it, in Persian War? Back in the back in the day, so yeah, let, let's just wait and see. I would say we were just chatting there about Florian Porter, John. You're in the middle of the jubilation on Thursday last week. What was it like? Well, somebody told me that James Cahill was there, and I said what? And I just thought the hurling pod. I've got to get this. So I went over and uh, that was actually me. That was me. I was watching it on TV, and I frantically texted a couple of people from off the ball, and I said, "I'm fairly sure that's James Gale carrying your man." I had no idea, so I was like, "We need to surely be on this." So it was all down to me, JD. Of course it was. Yeah, of course it was. Me. Well, it's the hidden hand, isn't it? I was at home doing nothing with COVID. Yeah, the invisible so, hand. The COVID again? In, well, first time. All right, yeah, sir. Yeah, no. I think. <laughs> I thought you know. I thought you were over it before. Yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah, no, it was just, it was great. I, like, when you think about the owners last week, Kenny Alexander, Tony Bloom, who owns Brighton uh, with Honey Suckle and Energoman, and Chief Luke Park stood with uh, a Plutard. And these are all brilliant people who do so much for supporting national hunt racing. But for Port is the story. Like, they bought the horse off an ad on Facebook for a few grand, and it turns out to be a fairy tale. Uh, you have the scarves um, in black and white to represent a pint of plane. You've everybody gone crazy first of all, when they're watching the race and then in the winner's enclosure, it was Bedlam. They put Danny Mullins on the shoulders and I just grabbed a bit of it and it was just funny that James Cowell was there. Everybody around that area, partly of, of Galway, South Roscommon, you know more, Johnny, with the geography of it, um, was just... Like, think about it. To be there, first of all, a year on when, when they won it without a crowd, to be there, to see your horse win, and they probably all backed the hell out of it as well. So there's so many things, and then they know they're going to have an amazing night that night. And Gavin Cromwell met him afterwards, just tell him that told me that he just uh, he brought the horse up, um, led him into the winners' enclosure, and like racing needs uh, syndicates, I think more than nearly ever anything else, because that's what people can dream about. They can dream about not being priced out of the market. That actually they could own a leg or a, um, a, you know anything of a horse that would go to Cheltenham and actually win. Um, these are the stories that make racing connect with the public on a wider basis than it becoming like the flat where it's just uh, a small coterie of big owners and that's the way it's been going for the last 10 to 20 years Was that your highlight of the week? 
Oh, there were many highlights. Uh, Rachel Blackmore obviously is the is the big story, winning the Gold Cup, uh, the first ever lady rider to win the Gold Cup and winning the champion hurdle. And that is a big highlight. That is something that that gets racing um, a broader appeal than it currently has. I think Willie Mullins' achievement is just incredible to have as many winners as the whole of the UK, ten winners over a third of the races. It just shows how good this guy is. And as I said to Johnny on Friday, he's a great representative for the sport. They're, they're the three highlights, that and Flooring Porter. So there's the owners, the jockey and the trainer. The owners, Flooring Porter, the jockey, Rachel, the trainer, Willie. But we're in a, we're in a good place. Uh, what are you kicking off for this morning, John? Well, it's already about that. We all knew this was happening with the Euro 2028 and, and Ireland and England and Wales and Scotland hosting games. But I suppose it's just the news that tomorrow is the deadline. There will not be another bid. UEFA is set to expand the tournament to 32 teams. Does this put the kibosh on Wenger um, being the representative of FIFA with this biennial World Cup? One of the worst ideas I've ever heard of football. Will this actually torpedo it now? given UEFA going full steam ahead with 32. 32 teams in itself is bloated. 24 teams is bloated. It should be just 16 teams for the Euros, in my opinion. There should be a degree of prestige about qualifying for these tournaments. Now it seems it's harder not to qualify for these tournaments, uh, which is not right, is it? And the question I'll only ask about this is, what is the legacy going to be for Ireland out of hosting a major tournament? Because there has to be a link between hosting the tournaments and having all the politicians saying well this is going to be worth millions and millions to the exchequer it's going to be great for the Irish economy that's a wonderful thing but the reason why is because you've got football the most popular sport in the world and the sport that has the most participation in this country being centre stage so what is the link between that and better facilities at League of Ireland level and actually academy structure for younger people because they can't go to England now until they're 18 and an actual industry in the country because we know the FAI before this current uh, incarnation of the FAI have not been able to manage the finances to allow that to happen. So what is the legacy going to be? Are we going to be in a situation in 2030 where we have League of Ireland facilities the way they are now, where we don't have an academy structure? So there has to be a link between some kind of redistribution of wealth from the state, because the state are the only people that can do this now to give uh, Ireland a football industry that it deserves. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's a very good point, and um, it's it's even it's not only League of Ireland as well. It's just like at all levels. I think Ireland is a bit unique in that um, you could have a an eight year old boy or girl who literally has four or five options and really legitimate options in terms of what he or she wants to play, and football needs to fight for its right. Um, I think it has a lot going for it in terms of um, the traction of it being a relatively safe sport to play going forward. Unlike some other sports, I would argue, and it's the global sport. But as JD says. Uh, for a country with so much money in it, we are disgracefully behind on facilities at all levels as far as I'm concerned. If you had to put your realistic cap on, John, what do you think the answer to your own question will be? What will the legacy of it be? Well, there's hope and there's confidence. The hope is that people will see this, that this is a global religion. Rugby, like, I, I see rugby has got, like, I was watching the rugby at the weekend on the TV and the amount of corporate support in the advertising around rugby is so impressive. And we don't have a shirt sponsor. Uh, and, and this is the global religion. This is the language of the world, football. No other sport comes close. You can talk, rugby is played by, what, 10 nations at a serious level. Gaelic Games is an indigenous sport, a great sport. Gaelic Games is not, doesn't have any uh, link outside of Ireland whatsoever. And the facilities at Gaelic Athletic Association, because they manage their business really well, uh, is so impressive. You've got club grounds that are probably on a par with League of Ireland facilities. 
and there's a real disconnect I think between the status that football has in the world, the status it has as the most participated sport in the country, the status that it has, the fact that we know it's the most popular sport. The Republic of Ireland, when they're doing well, are the biggest deal in town for me by a mile. And you see that in the ratings on television. Like, when you think about it, JD, the, the, what actual football stadia do we have in the entire country? Like, the Aviva Stadium, I mean, I think it's fair to say the IRFU kept the, kept the show on the road there, and we were effectively just kind of hanging on in terms of, you know, the, the ticket sales a disaster. After that, I think we've Tala. And that, that's it. Tala itself is a nice stadium, but, like, it's, it's far from remarkable. And that's all we have to show for our infatuation with football in a very, very wealthy country with a lot of multinationals. It's, it's un- incredibly bad. So you're hoping there's a connect- connection and the government sees that between what football can do for the economy in 2028. And we've all been here. We've seen Notre Dame play Navy and Tampa Bar being packed. And you just know that if it's whether we qualify or not, and hopefully we do qualify, that if Germany were meant to play England here in the last 16 of of the Euros, it would have happened if you hadn't had the COVID situation. Um, What that would have done for uh, just the the presence around Dublin. So obviously it's worth a huge amount to the uh, domestic economy and and well done for Ireland being a part of this. And there has to be credit given to being a part of this because we probably could easily have had it without ourselves being involved. Obviously it's a, a kind of a, it's a, it's a payback from UEFA around the World Cup because the World Cup bid was the thing, wasn't it, for 2030? But um, England was never going to get that, it seemed, uh, politically. I think that's going to Argentina and Uruguay anyway. Mm. Um, but I, I just. We're better off not going for that, though, really, aren't we? Mm. Well, you're better off uh, going for something that you can win. <laughs> um, and host that not uh, completely crippling expense. Yeah, like Porto and Braga, it was a very good night. It was out at the Europa League final in 2011, and it could, that could have been more attractive teams in terms of popularity around here. So, um, it, like these things are great, but there has to, but you have to do both. Yeah, and the most important thing to do on a primary level is is the game itself here, and these things can be a bonus and an add-on for sure. Uh, John, do you want to take us through the rest of the headlines this yeah, morning? Yeah, well, uh, John Eustace, at QPR, they play a similar type of football to what Stephen Kenny plays. So that's why I think he's been brought in as Anthony Barry's replacement. We play Belgium, who, who Anthony Barry's with now on Saturday in a friendly in Dublin. Going to be a set out, it seems. And that just shows, once again, that Stephen Kenny and these young players have captured the imagination of the, the football supporting public. Um, so that's what's going on there. Festia Baselli going to Udinese, I'm sure you've touched upon. Phil Mickelson not playing at Augusta for the first time since 1994. Um, him taking time out of the game has stretched to a tournament he's won three times. He's got three green jackets. Um, I do hope there's forgiveness for Phil Mickelson because um, he was offside, but he like he didn't. It, it, you know, in, in the annals of indiscretions, it wasn't that bad. And I do hope that he, he gets a second chance now and, you know, because he's, he's a popular guy and you'd like to see him back playing on the PGA Tour, um, Phil Mickelson, what a fall from grace since winning the PGA Championship last year. We have the draw for the WGC match play in Texas, which starts tomorrow. Shane Lowry is alongside in his bracket, Brooks Kepka, Harold Varner III and Eric Van Royen. Seamus Power, who's bidding to get to Augusta in a group alongside Patrick Cantlay, Sung Jai Im and Keith Mitchell. Lads. We will have virtual insanity tomorrow. We will have it. Um, I just wasn't on my game at Chatham, which is unusual for me, uh, but I obviously feel that the golf is going well at the moment and I've already picked up my players not for this tournament it's for the Corrales 
Punta Cana Club and Resort Championship in the Dominican Republic. Right. Who, uh, who needs Florian Porter when you've got Luke List and Ryan Brem? Well, that's it. Um, and I, it took me only about a half an hour to pick out who I, who I liked in this. And I, I wouldn't go near the match play, folks. If you have any, don't go near the match play. It's a lottery. Right. Annals of Indiscretion sounds like a good new slot, though, doesn't it? Sounds like the name of a horse, actually. Yeah, Annals of Indiscretion. What would you call your horse, Johnny? Oh, you've had horses. Um, yeah, we we uh, we had a few horses. One one I was particularly fond of was Dancer from the Dance because I thought it like you know evoked memories of the Yeats poem and all that. How can you tell the dance from the dance? She turned out to be absolutely useless, though. She ran <laughs> like she she raced with Willie Mullins and everything. She had the best of care. She just couldn't move. And you can give a nice name, JD. You don't make the move though. What would yeah. you call yours? Owen's Kingdom, something Kerry-related? Yeah, let's go with that. Yes, you're, you're very, yeah, you're just all about the kingdom. There's much, yeah, much else going on in your pretty, life. Pretty one-dimensional human being. That's what, that's what I call, <laughs> call the horse, pretty one-dimensional <laughs> human being. Yeah. There's an 18-character limit, Owen. Oh, is there? No, yeah. Oh, that's good to know. You learn something new about racing every day. John Duggan. All right, lads. Chat to you tomorrow. It is uh, 10 to 9 on this Tuesday morning OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Uh, now Irish hurdler Sarah Lavin is with us on the line. If you missed it at the weekend she came 7th in the final of the 60 metre hurdles at the World Indoor Championships in Belgrade. In the semi-final though she broke the 8 second mark so uh, not a bad weekend's work. Sarah good morning to you. Good morning guys thanks for having me. <laughs> you must be pretty delighted with that. Yeah um this time last week, like that was the aim. I guess I went in with um, an 806 PB from, and I'd equaled it in Paris. So it was, it was the best form I ever brought into a championship. So I was hoping, you know, obviously to go that that one step further. Obviously, really, really wanted to break that eight seconds. It's just like a a marker over a class hurdling, and um, you know, I think to go to verbalise that like maybe ten days ago, and, and then to go do it, that was really really special because sometimes it doesn't happen like that um and and the way it happened i guess you know to run a pb at, at nine o'clock in the morning in the heat and then to go quicker again in the afternoon um sometimes you could you know if it had happened the other way around i, I wouldn't have met a world final and so i'm just so grateful for the way things played out and yeah <laughs> i really really delighted there's a lot of things there that I, that I wanted to ask you about. The first thing there, when you talk about verbalising it and then actually doing it, is that something that you do before pretty much every big meet that you say what you want to achieve and does it tend to work? No. <laughs> I'd definitely be afraid. I think, like, obviously I keep it to... I, I tend to keep it to myself. Um, you always have goals, I suppose, like anyone in any in any avenue of life. Like, you know, you, you have targets and goals that you, you want to meet. Um the way things happened actually there was like um, the permanent TSB were launched as the new title sponsor for the Olympic team so there was a press conference and stuff a week out which is not really like what an athlete loves to do before they head off to a world championships is talk to (laughs) a heap of journalists Um, but it's just the way it happened and and, um, thankfully uh, it it happened you know it it all came through and um, yeah, I, it wouldn't be typically something. Obviously, you keep it to yourself. You know, you have targets, but you definitely don't wouldn't like to be climbing trees and shouting. You know. <laughs> yeah, it's a very Irish thing to to play yourself down for fear that actually what you say you might do actually doesn't come yeah. true. And, mm. and I don't even know as of playing yourself down. It's just we're a funny old nation. You know what I mean? Mm. <laughs> you don't want anyone to get ahead of yourself. And um, yeah, I I don't know. I think. Um, 
yeah, I, I, it's just, it's in our nature, I guess. You're right, you're right. But it's not even a playing yourself down. It's just more like you don't want to get notions or whatever. Yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> like, and if you're chatting to the other athletes from other countries, are are they happy to, to exist in a world of notions and this sort of carefree yeah. mindset? <laughs> It's, it's, it's really interesting and particularly certain nations are, are far more confident than others. And it probably does come back to a, you know, a, a, a confident thing that's happened, I suppose, to, throughout the years. But yeah, there's definitely, um, you know, a lot of different mindsets. Um, European hurdlers are great to share, but like there's carnage in the warm up always, you know, there's limited amount of hurdles, um, particularly safe for the heat because there's 48 athletes qualified. Um, and for the worlds and then there's a certain amount of heat everyone's warming up everyone's to do their drills and stuff so you've got coaches there like having their coats over the hurdles protecting it and their athletes might not even want to use it you know yeah. like, emotions and um yeah it's it, the, the european hurdlers generally tend to um you know rally together <laughs> and and i've a good friend um liz Kay from australia so um yeah we were you know, we, we'd share hurdles or whatever, but yeah, there's a lot of antics, of course, in, in a warm-up area. Right, so, uh, so at the weekend, for example, would you have to get there extra early just to make sure that you have a couple of hurdles to, to practice with? Um, even if you're there three hours early, someone's there before with their right. cold wrap. And <laughs> my coach is great. Um, but it's definitely why you need a coach as well. You know, at the end of the day, sometimes it's not even like, obviously she's giving really, really good technical feedback um, on the start. But sometimes it's actually just someone to fight like your corner, you know. And you'd swear some of these people brought the hurdles from <laughs> like the US or Bahamas or right. overseas on the plane. <laughs> and, and they weren't going to share or Jamaica, you know, so... Um, yeah, it is. It's it's kind of funny, but it's all just part of the championship, and um, it's entertaining, I guess. If you you just can't take it to uh, get too uptight about it. <laughs> uh, you, you mentioned your coach there, uh, Noelle Morrissey, is your coach, and uh, you mentioned her in your post race interview with David Gillick at the weekend about how she puts you through your paces to the point where racing multiple times in a day is not a problem for you. So, how tough yeah. are we talking here? What 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 is the the, the process like working with Noelle? Because you've known her for quite some time. Yeah, she's she's coached me since I was seven, which is really, really mad, you know. Um, and I'm 27 now, so she knows way too much about me. Wow. And I know way too much about her. <laughs> um, but no, it's, um, it's, really, it's a really special relationship, I guess, we have. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's tough. I'm going to be very careful here because I'm heading into outdoor training. I only have a week off and I don't want to get absolutely butchered next week. <laughs> um, but yeah, like she, you know, we're, we, it's no different. I guess like a lot of it, when you get to the, the a world championships, there's very little difference between what every girl is doing, you know, training wise. Um, but it's more, it, it, a lot comes down to mindset and it's on you know in that moment like there is very very little and I think I was very fortunate to get exposed to before Christmas and like so many of the girls are just really nice so um and linking in with other groups in other countries really brings you on to to the next level but um there is very very little difference to what any training we're doing and it's more so like on in the moment you know what I mean I mean like everyone trains hard if you're in high performance sports, you know, there's no, <laughs> but I think what the, why the final was my slowest round. Um, I think I, it was just a very high adrenaline to run 797 at that time. It was exhausting an hour and a half later. Um, and, and, you know, I think also 
Kambonji, Sydney, and I were the three. We're both we basically the European hurdlers raced each other. You know what I mean? So it really has to be so internal because this, you're literally talking about the smallest of margins. Um, and when Pork and Bungie hit a hurdle, it makes it's an external stimulus, I guess. Um, so everything it's just it's it's that moment of oh, even though it didn't actually affect you, but it is still an external stimulus that kind of can bring you out. I know it sounds so deep. Because <laughs> well, it's, it's I was going to ask that, Sarah, because like, I mean, uh, for anybody who didn't see the race, it's it's a pretty, uh, like, it's a pretty extraordinary fall. Like, I mean, it's, she just clips the hurdle, it's to right to your right-hand side, and she yeah. goes down straight in her face. Like, I mean, I presume it, you can't not see that. It can't not put you off. So, um, and it's, it's- it's not even a see, it's more like a feel, if right. you get what I mean. Mm. Like, and, and everything you're doing is a feeling, to be honest, at that level, you know. And um, it, it, It's a moment, it, it, and it's gone, and there's nothing you can do. But at the same time, that's championship racing, and you have to do better and, and, and not let that... You have to be deeper within yourself to not let that bring you out, if that makes sense. So it's on me, you know what I mean? And, and, and thankfully, I don't think she was too badly injured or or anything like that but um, yeah like if you had said to me last week that I was lining up like it, it was just such a spectacle like the lights the show I'm not sure if you saw it but mm. you know it was to, to be lining up in a world final the final I thought I could do it someday of course but I didn't know it was going to happen at the weekend um, and and it's not that I I, I react my reaction was just so pure but at the same time I don't know will I ever feel like that again going into it which is mad you know right. what I mean that I'll never feel like that going again into it, making a final, I guess, you know, um, probably will if I ever win a medal. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, I think like if I had, if I had seen where what, everything that had happened happened and, and there was girls outside of the final that, you know, I rate so, so highly. There was a Swiss girl, Zabarin and, and Liz from Australia. Like they, they, I rate them just so highly and, and, you know, it was just sometimes it's awful to say, but it's the roll of a dice and who's in that exact moment in that semi like has the, you know, there's so little between us all um, that, yeah, it's it, it was just a really, really special day and a special weekend. And yeah, <laughs> the, the the psychology of the event is, is fascinating. And I, and I wonder at times if it's frustrating just having to accept that there is a little bit of a, a roll of the dice involved because I, I saw you speaking after your heat in Tokyo saying that you didn't have a thoughtless race, which is a really interesting phrase to use, that it needed to be autopilot, I assume, in order to get the best out of yourself. And maybe that didn't happen at the Olympic Games last year. Uh, so, so how do you try and come to terms with the fact that you need to be in a, a thoughtless space of mind and there is not much that you can do to control that sometimes? You you have to really practice it, you know what I mean? Right. And that comes to every rep in training and that's every time you're hurting on the track in a you know especially like speed endurance it's so much fun indoors because it's 60 meters but um like sep- uh, november december like you're lying on the ground thinking oh my gosh <laughs> dying would be easier here right now because um, your body's just in pain you know you're just riddled with lactic or whatever um, but, um yeah i think like heading into outdoor like you have to in those moments just blank your brain and I know that sounds bizarre to (laughs) to the average person but you can perceive the pain you know what I mean you just have to keep moving and um 
yeah, I think having it that getting into those like mindsets and training then transfers into a race where you have to just be within yourself. And um, I think it's really, really hard to describe. And you can read all the sports like books and they talk about this flow state or whatever, but it's just like not thinking, you know what I mean? I think we're really good at it as kids, but as we get older, the world teaches us to think, you know, through education, through whatever. Um, and you're almost wanting to do the opposite. <laughs> you're in yeah. the moment of my performance for it. I don't know. Um, so yeah, I it, it's 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 practice. Yeah, I think. But I think looking back on Tokyo, also, you know, we, it's it's in Japan. Firstly, um, racing loads really really suits me. Um, thankfully, because I love to race, but. Um, you're heading out to a holding camp that's three and a half weeks. I also had back issues, hamstring issues. That we're, I really ex- like extended my limits to qualify for the games. You know, you have to bear in mind I was 57th last January in the world, mm. and I was trying to be top 40 to qualify. So June was really last. You know, I, my body was really, really pushed to its limits, and we had to go. I either had to keep going and potentially run out of steam for Tokyo or to go back into training for two weeks and and we had my body I had I had really been on my last legs before I ran that 1295 in Madrid last June so we had to do something it was really one of those things that we can talk about I should have raced closer but it just wasn't possible you know (laughs) um so going out in Tokyo like running the 13 I was just like I love a championship I love bringing my best to the biggest stage and and I think Derville probably taught me how important that was you know what I mean subconsciously even um that that's really all that matters and, and to not put out my best performance in Tokyo really really hurt me like right. it was not my it wasn't my lock screen but you know the home button you know the home the one that's yeah. inside your phone <laughs> like I had like it still is like that was me there was one girl I finished seventh in my heat there was a French girl behind me um but she was injured do you know what I mean so effectively I was just like what you know really really what was that um, and motivation for your lock screen <laughs> an absolute insight into my mindset but mm. like that hurt I was like you were looking at that for the foreseeable like until you close that gap and and just look at those girls I think there's only one girl I haven't beaten since that finished ahead of me in some race right so you know? if, if you beat her then you're changing your home screen uh, well, she's the world record holder, so that would be no. someday, wouldn't it? <laughs> That's a very Irish thing as well. I'm going to put up like uh, something that really annoys me on my lock screen, like you know. <laughs> yeah, and, and yeah, you can, because you know you can, you have to think of the biggest, the biggest state. You, you have to just we're a small country and a small pond, and and it's such a big stage. Like the standard is so high, and I think athletics just isn't a massive sport in this country. So. Mm lose the concept and also I don't think on TV people realise how fast people are going you know like as in I look at 800 like or every rate and you're literally just like your jaw is dropped when it's right in front of you and for some reason the TV screen never seems to, to back and I'd be the first to say that because I remember being 7 watching the Olympics seven ten, thinking like oh, I think I can run that fast <laughs> um, so it's not until you're actually there and you see the, the standard across you know like warming up for that final the only two finals that were on that night were the 60 meter men's and the women's hurdles and so there was eight there were 16 athletes eight women and eight men warming up and and there's just those coaches out, like and people staff just videoing people warming up because 
it's so like even after the world stage these are all world class coaches they are still mesmerised by watching these guys ex- coming out of the blocks because technically it's, they're just so good you know and it, it's it's really is such such a high standard and um, yeah I, it, it was it's I, I'd love for I suppose athletics become more accessible in this it is so accessible in this country but I think the concept of the level is sometimes lost and um, that's I'm not even talking about me do you know that kind of way mm. but um, I, I, I really um, it is amazing to watch some of these athletes yeah yeah that's fa- like so that that sort of idea of the Olympic Games then and and I guess the way that you look at it is is a, is a very interesting one I, I suspect because you've obviously spoken about maybe keeping that moment on your home screen at the, uh, for, for the foreseeable future uh, at the same time though there is a, a break to the Olympics because of COVID obviously in 2020 which I guess puts you in a better position to compete and then again on the flip side of that again is Rio and and, and your bad injuries around that time that, that stop you from yeah. competing I guess the life of an athlete can very quickly become at least when you're doing these sort of conversations about the staging post of the Olympic Games, when it's about so much more than that. It really is, and it's such a journey. And I even look back at 2016 and, and all those things, and I was just like, you know, I think if I had met this final, I came out of junior career, and it was so easy to me, you know what I mean? Like, if I had met a world, fin- world indoor final in 2016, which I was definitely capable of doing, <laughs> I don't think it would have meant so much, you know what I mean? So um, you just have to trust that like everyone's journey is so, so different and I will never be another athlete and another athlete will never be me. And you have to take all those moments and trust that this is why things fall the way that it is. Because, you know, I'm sure there was injured athletes watching. I even remember every time I was, you know, every championship that's ever been on from 2016, like this was my first ever world stage apart from World Juniors in 2012. So it was 10 years since I arrived at a World Athletics event, like a championship. And I've watched 10 years of other Irish athletes making championships and it just hurt, like hurting, you yeah. know, because you're sitting there, you have a niggle, you have a bad, bad injury or you're just off. What's even worse is when you don't have an injury and you're just in crap shape, you know what I mean? Um, and just watching BBC and crying for other athletes who have done well and you know because you're just happy for them not you know that kind of way that you're just like you it's such an emotional thing and um I can't believe I was on the flip side of that you know and and if I had known in that moment and I'm sure there was injured athletes watching like people who had just missed average people who just had a hard year and see things just didn't line up on time and if I had known at that moment watching it that it will all turn out okay (laughs) yeah I just think like just hold the faith I presume when you're watching those other Irish athletes over those ten years, like you're feeling happy for them, but you're also gutted as well. Like I mean, it's it's it would it would be it wouldn't be human nature otherwise, right? Well, I I would never no. I'm I'm very very happy for everyone, and like you know, I, I would never be kind of bitter in any way. Sure, Jeez, but that would, it, not it, you'd be looking at it through your own perspective, I guess. Is 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 my point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, you just would be like, I would do anything to be there, hmm. to be standing right right now. Um, and I suppose even my initial reaction after the final, I was quite, dis- you know, I kind of was def- a little bit deflated compared to what I was, say, like two hours before that or an hour and a half before that. But and, and it's like by another 12 hours later, I was like, you have so much to be grateful for. If you'd known last week that you were going to make a world final break eight seconds where you were three years ago 
where you were two years ago, where you were a year ago, if you'd known all of those things, like you would have just been like, and, and it's just gratitude. You have to remain just so grateful for everything you have. The sport is like, <laughs> you always want more. If you're win, if you win, you want a world record. If you get the world record, you, you've you made some technical mistake that you want to fix to make it harder for the next, you know, so there's everyone leaves a little bit like wanting more, no matter where you finish. And, and it's just to hold where you were a month ago, 12 months ago, two years ago, and, and just keep that in perspective, um, I think is so, so important. Yeah. Which I guess is just a, a perfect note to finish on then when you think about wanting more from this starting point now. Is it all about Oregon this year? Is that what you've got your sights set on or are there other goals uh, in, yeah. in the interim? Um, definitely Oregon, like a world champ, is going to be so special. Like Eugene is tracked down like USA. <laughs> and Like they literally call it that. Um, and then Munich, the European Championships are also. So again, we're just, I, I'm, I'm lucky, you know, that the way the calendar has fallen and and how things were delayed and pushed out the fact that we've a world championships this year and the europeans and then next year indoors comes back to european indoors and there's another world championships in budapest in 2023 and then we're into paris and and all these competitions lead into each other i suppose for world rankings and and opportunities to run fast you know um because it again it's so difficult to qualify for an olympics people assume you know obviously i want to get to paris and my goal is to have a better Olympic finish and all that, but it's so difficult to get to the Olympics, you know what I mean? And you can't take that for granted either. So it's making sure you take all these little boxes along the way and, and just keep progressing. Yeah. Well, listen, Sarah, congratulations on a hell of a day on Saturday <laughs> and uh, best of luck over the next little while. Thanks, many for taking the call. Thank you. Cheers. Sarah Lavin there on the line. She is uh, the Irish hurdler who came uh, seventh in the world indoors in Belgrade at the weekend and, of course, breaking the eight-second barrier earlier in the day as well. Uh, it is nine, uh, 11 minutes past nine on this uh, Tuesday morning. You're with us here on OTBAM, which is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. We're going to give you another uh, chance to win our competition. Uh, get ready to cheer Ireland on in the TikTok Women's Six Nations to launch this year's campaign. We are giving away two tickets to see Ireland take on Wales this Saturday at quarter to five at the RDS. The lucky winners will also be entered into a draw to be in with a chance to win an overnight stay at the Intercontinental Hotel on the night of the game. To enter this competition, tell us what you think the score will be this weekend between Ireland and Wales. Wherever you're watching this morning's OTBAM, just comment on our Twitter or Facebook or YouTube streams. International Women's Rugby is at the RDS and there's nothing like it. Be part of the action Get your tickets at ticketmaster.ie. Now let's tell you what's coming up on OTB Sports Radio today. From one o'clock, we've got OTB Gold. Keith Andrews in conversation with Philly McMahon. The Dadcast coming your way at three o'clock. The Keith Earls interview with Joe at four o'clock. OTB Gold and the company, of course, Staunton at six. And then Off the Ball is live on your radio tonight from seven o'clock. Up next this morning here on OTB AM, we're bringing you into the world of Kilkenny football or the lack of it. OTB. It's now 10 years since Kilkenny last played in the National Football League. They finished bottom of Division 4 that year with a scoring difference of minus 239 points and they haven't played senior inter-county football since a round 8 defeat to Clare in April 2012. We headed to Kilkenny to find out if anyone cares about football in the county. I'd say it's hurling first. Um, I'd imagine it would be rugby then and soccer then. I haven't heard Gaelic football in like two years to be honest like no one talks about it why not not really good at it are yeah, we no. 
it's not good like this is boring as well football clubs are very scarce you know it's mostly hurling to play all year round you know when you're around the county do you ever see a game of football happening in a GA pitch well to be honest with you I didn't know the hurling fraternity couldn't care less if there was no footballers in Kilkenny because Kilkenny is hurling would you like to see the, the men's football team back in the championship and in the league I don't follow you would you don't be honest with you I follow you with a hurling area, but I don't follow you football. I wouldn't go to a football match. Yeah. Yeah. Follow me, no? yeah. What if you were a good Gaelic footballer in Kilkenny? Move County, is that the answer? No, no. No, it's not at all, actually. That's never the answer, let's be honest. They have a football team, but right time to go for massacres. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? They have the skills. And do you think that they can get the skills? Well, the right coach, I suppose. The good dude, but who's going to coach them? This is the man that coaches them. Current Kilkenny manager, Christy Walsh. There's a lot of it played up to in the 14 level. After that thing, it kind of drops off. Is that because the hurling starts to get serious at that level and the, the hurling people won't have any of their good players going playing football? Well, you can't say that, you see. Um, but it prob- there's probably a bit of truth in that. But I don't want to see people don't want it. And there are fellas that don't want to see football. In, in, you know, but... Most hurling people are like that anyway, you know, there's a kind of a snobbery attitude of, you know, the game isn't good enough for us or whatever. But I suppose there's no great pressure on them either, you know, and there's nobody... Um, I don't know, it's just the interest probably isn't there. Kilkenny football isn't without its accolades, but most of them are consigned to ancient history. They won the first ever Leinster Football Championship in 1888, before winning the province again in 1900 and 1911. In 1929, they beat Louth by six points, which was the last time they won a senior championship game. 53 years of beatings followed before they were eventually pulled out of the championship after the 1982 campaign. The National League then became their sole competition and lopsided results got more lopsided when four divisions became 1A and 1B and 2A and 2B in the late 90s. Philip Roach was part of that 1990s Kilkenny team. My first senior game was... Uh, again, Kerry, uh, when I was 16, when I was in 99, so actually, uh, yeah, it was in February 99. Uh, I was Mark Morris Fitzgerald. Uh, there was uh, a neighbour of mine, has, uh, he's from Kerry, and he brought me up a clip, uh, have it on the paper. He uh, was Mark and showed me a picture of myself and Morris Fitzgerald, who was Mark at the time, but um, the headline of the oak was a total mismatch, like, do you know what I mean? But it wasn't, it was 316 to 3 points, like. 1999 was a league campaign that forced Kilkenny, not for the last time, to pull their team out of the National League. They returned once more in 2008, a year when they did get a win against London. But a 0% record followed every league campaign after that, with the team pulled from the league once and for all in 2012. Their sights were then set on the British Junior Championship, which they did win three times, and one of the players who went on plenty of those trips in the UK was Shane Kelly. It's a novelty of getting away, like we were playing over in England, so you'd be going away over for the day and should nearly turn into a session on the way home. Like, but, you know, we most of the time would be playing a Saturday match and might be leaving Kilkenny at half four or five to go to Dublin for a flight, fly over, sure, might be safer playing, and Leeds would be getting her breakfast over there, but a lot of waiting about for the match. And depending on the flight time home, you could either have time for a few pints after or whatever, but, or else you could be rushing to catch mm. the flight. And you're what about a few pints beforehand? Uh, no, not I wouldn't anyway. Others may may have done, but I'll uh, I'll not drop anybody into it. Like we went over one one day, like and we were uh, we were in getting our food for the match, and I listened. It was a couple of lads up at the bar, like and the next time we went out, and these boys were rushing me drinking, and they were playing again. It's like you know I mean? there were lads drinking right before the game, right before the game. Like it didn't 
that was the that was the last year around. yeah that was the last year around. like I didn't benefit it just then it was 2019 19 like and, and lads just didn't tell other said here this is just a joke like do you know what I mean like going over there that like for that This is Railyard GAA Club. Located close to the Leash and Carlo borders, it is the only all-football club in Kilkenny that trains kids from under-7s right up to senior level. They are the most decorated club in Kilkenny with 22 county titles and their chairman is Paddy Ward. We would have like juvenile training there on a Thursday night. Uh, we'd go along with the ladies' club and we would train everybody under 11 and now we'd have between 105 and 110 kids there every Thursday night. And Caleb Roach is one of their senior players. It's funny enough, like when you go away and you're talking to people and ask you where you're from, what's your club, and you have rail yard and that, and you say hurling or whatever, and they say, no, football action. Did everyone kind of laugh in a way? Like, but uh, it's funny when the more the older people you talk to, the farther away, they know rail yard too. Like, they were well known back, I suppose, 70s and 80s. They were very well known. Paddy McGonagley, the former Donegal wing back, has now settled in Kilkenny and is a rail yard man. When I left Donegal, I suppose the football was kind of, as from playing perspective, it was a bit, you know, Jim McGuinness came to Donegal and all clubs were trying to replicate this defensive system. So it wasn't as enjoyable. When I moved to Kilkenny, then it was back to 15 on 15, you know, with a real open, expansive football. There's no young lad, I suppose, dreams of pulling on a Kilkenny football jersey, which is a shame in a way. It's always been hurling in Kilkenny, and I suppose most lads here, their main thing is to win something with Railyard. And unfortunately, after that, it kind of dwindles a little bit. The minors uh, this year, like there's three minor games that's been played off in two weeks, I guess from the quarter final right through to the final. So that's if you, if you get beaten the first game, you have one game, but if you get to the final, you have three games. That's over two week period, three weekends. That's it for minors. Under 15, they have no league. Under 15, have championship, no league. Obviously, hurling. I understand that hurling is their first preference for most people in the county. And I get that, but there's only so many players can make a county squad. So for the rest of the people, I'm sure there's a lot of lads, young lads, would love to be fighting for a county minor football position or a county under-16 or a county under-21 or county senior. But if you're missing all that development from underage right up, how do you expect a young lad that's played three, one or three minor games to break into your county senior team? Like you're you're setting the senior team up to fail all the time because of it. Like sure, look, the best way I can <laughs> describe Kilkenny football is it's like the housing crisis in Ireland at the moment. So there is, it's like that for years. It's going to be, it's not run right. So it is. There's lads coming every now and again. They're promising the sun, moon, and stars to you. There's never anything being done about it. There's no even games development officer for football. There's nothing. Uh, the only league to have underage in Kilkenny is the under thirteen. After that, there's nothing. We were lucky enough last year, our minors, we put them into um, the Carroll League. I'm over them myself. And we got 10 matches in the Carroll League. So we did. And 10 good matches. Again, good Carroll teams. Like. And from that team then, we're after getting nine young lads that's after coming on between senior and junior this year. But they got no matches in Kilkenny last year. And if we didn't put them in, I guarantee you, we probably would have got three of them to play football this year. The other six would have walked away. So you've literally had to move county oh, to get yeah. matches? Yeah, literally had to move county. Like uh, We had AGM here the other night, and the chairman was in his report, and he was saying, oh, from uh, under 13 up last year to senior, we got 57 games, and 54 of them was in Carlow. If you have a bad day or 
yeah, you're short that day. You know, you can you could end up just having one match in, in, a, in a particular age group, and you know it's it's very unfair. You know, and that's and that's would have been one of the reasons that we looked outside the county for league football. You know, otherwise we were we'd as well close our doors. You know, uh, it's, there's no structure. There's no nothing. There's, they don't want. They don't want it. It's as simple as that. So they don't. While there's a feeling of hopelessness sometimes attached to being involved with men's football in Kilkenny, that doesn't seem to be the case on the women's side. Here is Elena Byrne from Kilkenny LGFA. There is still though a perception out there we're kind of lumped in with the men's um, football here in Kilkenny and that perception out there is that there is no football in Kilkenny but it's a very different story with the ladies here, very different scene and uh, we have the present over 1,500 members here in Kilkenny playing with us. I think looking back from about seven years ago our numbers have actually tripled in Kilkenny. The perception out there might be, you know, it's obviously the Camogie County as well but the girls here, they play, they play both. We've loads of crossover of players, we've loads of dual players and we support that. Back in 2007, sure, it was a huge, huge success for Kilkenny at the time. They beat London in the All-Ireland Junior Final. We've been in Kilkenny here just trying to build back up to that for the past few years. And what you're essentially trying to do, um, and we started a few years ago, is, is focusing on keeping those girls playing at a young age and then and keeping them all the way up. So I think for a while there, there wasn't, there wasn't players coming through in Kilkenny because clubs started, any club that was starting off focused a lot on the teenage girls, say, starting at under 14. This year, for the first time, we have two, um, we have two county under 14 panels. We have a very strong under 16 panel. We had, you know, huge turnout for the trials for all of those county panels this year. So Kilkenny's women's team is on the way back and the expectation is that they will be playing National League in the next couple of years. Such a timeline on the men's side is much harder to nail down though. This year the county side season will involve playing an All-Ireland Junior semi-final on July the 8th against a British team. If they win, they will play the final on July the 10th and that will be their year. So even compared with the pre-Covid situation of playing the British Junior Championship, this season is going to be another step backwards. Getting back to playing Division 4 football looks to be as far away as it has been at any point over the last 10 years now. JJ Grace was a player in that last league game in 2012 and he's been helping Christy Walsh to coach the team since 2016. Look, I, to be honest, any of those Division 4 games at that time, they were they were tough. Um, but look, we still fielded the team. Um, was it hard? Of course it was. But again, there's not much growth for for football in Kilkenny, but I'd always say from being there over 10 years ago that the lads that were there cared and they wanted to play. So um, I have nothing but, but good memories. You know, were we getting some tough beatings? Of course you were. My job is to get a team to play in a couple of, a couple of months' time. The development of the game, like I, I, and, I, and like any manager of any team anywhere, he's only worried about his year or two years or three years. The development, 10-year development plan, unless you're, you know... It's not my, you know, I'm not interested in this. Even something as simple as cool camps, uh, you know, you'd see the hundreds of kids turn up at cool camps all over Kilkenny there during the summer. I don't even know, is there a football cool camp? But but whose fault, you know, is it my fault? It probably is my fault as much as anyone else's. Why would you say that? Maybe we don't, maybe we don't look for it or demand it or ask for it. Like, uh, Kilkenny had uh, one win in the National League back, I think it was... Again, London in 2008, I think it was. Um, and, and instead of building from that, they went backwards. Like I, I remember around that time we played Tipperary in the, in the football, in the league, in Division 4 in Northern America. And uh, never forget what they were saying. They were putting savage effort into football. So they were. And it, was, it wasn't a one-year plan or anything like that. It was a couple of years. And 
Like they won a Munster final uh, two years ago. So it was. But they were down as bad as Kilkenny. And I know, look, bigger county and more clubs, everything, more football clubs and York's like that. But there's no reason why Kilkenny couldn't be a competitive Division 40. There is enough of football going on now or in the next couple of weeks. Um, you know, and I suppose somebody somewhere will have to, to get, you know, there'll have to be, I suppose there'll have to be some development plan going forward. And I'm sure, I'm sure it's, it's been thought about somebody, but uh, I want to have anything to do. You know, it's not my uh, it's not my problem. I suppose I'd love to see it going ahead, but it's not my it's not my story. There'd be loads of players out there if you ring them tonight saying could they compete in Division Four? They would say yes. And for me, the only way you're going to find out is put us into us and let's see what we're made of. The um, county board, obviously. Do you think that they do you think that they actually want football to succeed? The, like people within Kilkenny who have who have the power, and I guess they they would see their job as her, the hurling team succeeding. Yes, well, the hurling team are a priority, and and and, but you could say the same below on Kerry. Do they want to see the hurling team succeed? They probably they probably do. In fairness, like they've got a, a hurling team that got to oh, a I final in Pro Park last year. But I'm just showing that you know. Uh, but I know a lot of people in Kerry would would, would you know wouldn't want well, to. Would I think there's a lot of people in Kerry oh, like I mean, is, yeah. who would really yeah. get behind it, and, and oh, even is, yeah. places that that wouldn't be hurling strongholds. Would support the hurlers and fight a bit more now. I understand that. Yeah. Hopefully, a county team or a panel can be formed, and we we give this junior championship whatever way it's looking a, a right crack in, in July. But like that's two games over a weekend, so you know, long term for developmental, long term football is it ideal? Jesus, it's not. But look, all I can do is wish for hope. I'd love to see Kilkenny in Division Four, but for the last ten years, I've been saying the same thing. So I do think the conversation around how do we put that structure in place has to happen and that has to be at developmental level with the underage and let's let's build up but that's not having a, a negative towards the players who are currently there I would say two years ago without COVID if we had the opportunity I'm an optimist I would have, I would have thought we would have been competitive uh, but competitive to me could be different to competitive to yourself yeah, there you have it. That is the state of play in Kilkenny football at the moment. Um, we requested to speak to a representative of Kilkenny County Board, but no one was available for interview in response to that piece. We did, however, get the opportunity to send questions to the PRO of the County Board and we got the following responses. We asked if there were any football development coaches for schools in Kilkenny. They said GPOs, of which we will have seven shortly, coach football as well as hurling in our schools. We asked if there were any plans for underage football development squads and they said, yes, we have had football development squads and we'll be forming them again post-COVID. We asked about the status of underage county football teams in Kilkenny. They said they are not participating in inter-county underage competition. We asked if there are plans to introduce a football league for clubs at under 15 or minor level and they said yes and then we also asked uh, where Kilkenny County Board sees football in the next 10 years in the county and they said we have a committee currently reviewing all GA activity in the county up to senior level in wide ranging consultation with amongst others our county board clubs schools primary and secondary and Cushton and Oak we will await its report and then plan for the future. So that is the response uh, from the county board to that piece. Uh, one comment in from Gerard who says, I ref London versus Kilkenny in Nolan Park one year. 27 people paid in, which is uh, quite the quite the statistic. And then a uh, bit of reaction as well to our chat earlier on around uh, the Euros. Mark says, uh, pity Gerard's not around this morning to go nuts about us hosting the Euros, which is... Uh, possibly a fair point I mean I'm not sure what his stance is on the Euros I think the World Cup is certainly a thing that would have irked a lot of people yeah 
and then go if, on. If, if ever you were made for a piece it was going to Kilkenny to talk about you know football or lack thereof it's just that's you really major at these like kind of hopeless stories basically yeah <laughs> I don't know it that's the sort or, of piece I'd like to do as well, or hopeful maybe. I mean, in, there wasn't in, much hope there was there. There, there wasn't much hope, but I think that, I think that there. I think it's easy to you know uh, be constantly positive about something when uh, everybody else is positive about it. But mm. it must be one of the most downtrodden subjects in Irish sport that the idea of football in Kilkenny. And you see the the positivity that that still exists from someone like JJ Grace there, who's involved with the Kilkenny yeah. football team at, at Railyard. Uh, and I saw a bit saw a bit of their, their session there. Seems like a, an excellent coach. And um, like, I, I think to be able to stay that hopeful, even though it may not seem overly hopeful to mm. sit on that level of hopeful, I think is commendable. You look at London as well, the season that they've had, like, yeah. and how hopeless their situation was. Like, I've always felt that um, the GA hasn't really succeeded in getting hurling around the country enough because it's like it's genuinely a national treasure of a game. I don't think Gaelic football is, to be honest. And I'm from a football area, whereas hurling, you bring anyone to a hurling game from outside of Ireland, and you know people will be just wowed by it. Um, and to see hurling develop, you know. I, I get a great kick out of Antrim running Kilkenny close this year and stuff like that I think that's very important um, and I think the GA hasn't really succeeded I know it's difficult the Kilkenny situation is bonkers though it's just I remember somebody in the county board saying to me years ago he said like the problem we have in Kilkenny is um, Gaelic football isn't anyone's first sport and he was kind of right unfortunately yeah. um, but it, I, I don't think it's right either on you know I think they're you know that you should be kind of compelled to at least be making an effort and maybe in the days when dual teams could could work they could like if, if the Kenny Harland team played for the Kenny footballers I'm sure they wouldn't be that bad mm-hmm. do you know what I mean it's just sad that's not the case anymore but it's, it is it's pretty depressing yeah, like I mean, it's a, it's a good point you made that it's, it's nobody's first board. Like there, there's obviously a very tiny section of the county where where it is, but by and large, not only is it not anybody's first board, it is seen as the as being squeezed to get more out of the hurlers. As in, if you mm. had an underage um, football team, it'd be good to have some of the hurlers involved with that for fitness to get them up to speed like the football is on at the moment I think the football season at underage level anyway will be kind of wrapping up soon so that the, the lads can get ready for hurling this is kind of you know their, their pre-season their pre-season is football and then the, the real thing is, yeah, is hurling and so I think yeah, I think like Kilkenny's achievements in hurling need to be taken in the context of well you've contributed nothing to football whatsoever so like you've basically had like one sport whereas other proper dual counties like have Galway's quite split in terms of north and south but like there's you know there's there's a nice mixture and I think you know people can relate to both sports I think it's an indictment of Kilkenny that they've made such a little effort with it like because it's Gaelic football is a is, is still a great game and you know Kilkenny should be aspiring to at least have a team have a team who that competes and like yeah. I guess the, the flip side of this argument has always been well Cavan don't take part in the mm. National League and Hurling well that's changed now like I mean that argument no longer washes Cavan have a team in the National Hurling League so Kilkenny do stick out a little bit on that front and I guess that's not necessarily the the, the, the whole point of doing it the whole, the whole point was kind of just to get a sense of well, what happens after 10 years of, of not being involved in, in the main competition like the Brit- British Junior Championship was great and all and they won it a couple of times but it I think sounds like a piss off in fairness like, like it, I, I don't think that the players you really wanted to take it seriously would have would, would have been overly enamoured just, yeah. just on the on the soccer um, point of it as well um, and apologies if I offend anyone calling it soccer but like Kenny City came and went as yeah. well, which was quite sad. Buckley Park is a lovely ground. I've been there many times. Um, and during lockdown, actually, um, 
I was in Kilkenny one day. I can't remember why I was there, but I I got a lift out to Buckley Park to have a look around, and it was like it was a strange um, experience because it's it's still used as a football ground, but like that came and went as well. And Kilkenny have some the Kilkenny region have some very good soccer players, like really yeah. good soccer players, and uh, it's sad because it's not a badge of honor to be a one county sport either. If you know what I mean? No. I guess not. I guess they probably said that the the rugby and Kilkenny or rugby and uh, racing. Uh, I guess uh, race. Yeah, had yeah. Sorry, that, sorry. Well, in terms of field sports, but like in Galway, for example, we've Connacht rugby, we've Galway United, we've very good hurling team, we've a, a good football team, and we should be proud that you know we've we've spread our wares around a bit. Like, because I think Kilkenny people shouldn't be proud of the fact that they're, they're a complete embarrassment when it comes to Gaelic football. Uh, so that piece if you miss it you can catch it in full it'll be up on our YouTube very shortly just one last comment and it says lads 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 elephant in the room have Ireland just qualified for Euro 2028 uh, they have not qualified for Euro 2028 they will have to qualify <laughs> for a 32 team tournament they're not going to let five teams in or it's 32 teams they may as well let all five teams in automatically I say but uh, 32 teams uh, and hopefully a 32 county like kind of Euros as well because we definitely want to that could be the tagline 32 <laughs> teams 32 <laughs> counties uh, I think, I think that'll not be. sure but uh, yeah I think uh, no the casement thing is going to be very compelling though because like how long is that going on now a casement like it must be going on what like 10 years Ooh, I'm not sure it's that long but certainly close enough is it well, mm. that's, well, sorry, but not, like since it's been shut down, what is it, five or six years? But mm. Ten years since it's been tried to, to, to get yeah. the redevelopment up and going. Sorry, yeah. Um, and it's um, to my best of my knowledge, it's a fairly deprived area of West Belfast as well, and I think it'd be great for the area. Um, so yeah, like if but if it took uh, uh, a soccer tournament with Northern Ireland as sort of the host nation for that game or whatever to get Casement going I think that might be a sign Northern Ireland's going in the right place on a lot of levels Yeah I think that's a good positive note to leave it on this morning Johnny thanks a million for coming in this morning OTBAM has been brought to you uh, and it is brought to you live each this morning This is my, my last question for yeah. you sorry I, I presume it was your idea to do that like anything just to prove that I was right Yes, like it was, it was your idea. Like, yeah. who who else would have thought I'm going to go to Kilkenny to talk to lads about white football? So I'm not like it is your your niche. Like, look look for the downtrodden, look for hope in places where there probably isn't much. Yeah, Rihanna wrote a song about that, before, <laughs> didn't she? <laughs> and on that note, better note to end on than me, actually. To be fair, ODBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Tomorrow morning, we're looking ahead to Ireland against Belgium, looking back at the Six Nations and speaking to Irish MMA star Sinead Kavanagh. John Morris, by the way, is our competition winner. He's off to cheer Ireland on in the TikTok Women's Six Nations this weekend. And he's also into our draw for a night at the Intercontinental Hotel. Ireland take on Wales on Saturday the 26th of March at quarter to five at the RDS Arena. Get your tickets at Ticketmaster.ie. OTB AM. With Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.